Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the things and stuff that we've seen since the last time we did one of these. <laughs> um, things heard and seen since the last time we did one of these. Uh, I'm David. I'm Tyler. You might notice it might sound a little different than it has over the past year plus. Yeah. Uh, It'll sound better and yet also worse because... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you, you know. pick your poison. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we are, for the first time since March of 2020, in the same room. It's crazy. Because we are both... Fully vaccinated, plus our two weeks and all of that. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I'm sorry. You've been I misinterpreted <laughs> what you needed from right, me. You've been vaccinated since before I have. <laughs> That's so true, I, yes. I know. Um, yeah, so this is very uh, strange and exciting it's, and weird. It, it's very surreal. I, I mean, it's what's fascinating to me is that we've been talking every week. Yeah. Via Zoom. But at the same time, it still feels like, oh, man, we took, like, there was, we took a huge break for BP. It's like, no, we, we really didn't. Yeah, no, we've but been it just, chugging along. It, it definitely feels strange right now, especially because so much, certainly in my life, uh, has changed since then. Like what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, we got, we got some new furniture in the other room. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and so uh, it's, it's all very strange. Uh, but now as just like, Life is kind of returning to normal. Like I'm going to be back on campus in the fall. Mm. You and I are recording here now. Uh, it's all very, very strange, yeah. but uh, exciting at the same time. I've got multiple trips booked for this. Do you? Yeah, uh, going to see. We're going to see my family for the first time in forever. Okay, uh, in August, and then I think we're going to Seattle in September. Seattle. We were supposed to go. To okay, so we were supposed to go to Argentina to Buenos Aires um, in. 2020 in the fall of 2020 sure. that obviously didn't happen but like why <laughs> but like way at the beginning they were like uh when we've like canceled our flight because you know of the pandemic yeah. <laughs> they were like okay but you have to rebook your flight within a certain amount of time right so we booked it for this september like thinking maybe things will be okay and like here they kind of are but apparently things aren't great in argentina sure. right now and sure. like we don't know that they there's not a great chance that they will be by September. It was getting close to the time. So, um, we canceled that trip again. Uh, the stupid airline <laughs> gave us our money back despite they, they didn't want to. Oh, okay. They didn't want it cause they were not in front of a ticket. Well, they, didn't, not, yeah. they didn't think uh, a pandemic was a good enough reason to give us the money back, but totally unrelated. They happened to have changed the departure time by more than two hours, right. which apparently any time, United changes your departure or arrival time for more than two hours from what you, bo- you booked. You are eligible for a full refund. All right. So they gave us a full refund, not because of COVID, yeah. just because of their dumb. We got lucky with their dumb loophole. But any, you know any what? Chance but you know what? They changed, airlines. They uh, they changed the time because of COVID. That's the weird Probably. thing. So uh, it's a roundabout way. But anyway, so I think we might be going to Seattle to replace that. Right. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, that'll be that'll be fun. It is. It feels good to be looking at traveling again you know um i just went to florida that's right uh, and it was my first time traveling since september of 2019 when i went to scotland and uh it was it was it, getting back to this stuff whether it be sitting here with you or just like going through security right at an airport <laughs> like something that you're just like this is all like I'm accustomed to this. I have, you know, but it's been so long that I suddenly, like I almost lost my wallet in security. Cause I, I was so 
flummoxed and just, so like overwhelmed trying to like get all this stuff done that uh thankfully the person behind me uh as i realized what had what had happened and i was walking back i was like someone has stole my wallet this is going to be not stole that somebody just picked up a wallet that uh, they didn't know who it belonged to and thankfully the guy behind me was like uh hey is this a wallet it's like i was just coming for that and so it was a very nice honest man and oh, that's that was great um yeah, you're uh, you're like my wife who also hasn't been on a plane since 2019. I had this because we think of like oh COVID was 2020, 2020 was a walk, right. but there were like two and a half months before yeah. it happened. And I remember talking last fall with a uh, friend of the show, Kyle Anderson about what a weird year it's been and how long ago, like stuff was. And Kyle was like, yeah, we went to Sundance in 2020. Yeah. So that was the last time I was on a plane was the way back from Sundance. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, we, we got plenty of movies to go get to. We haven't done one of these for a while. a while. Yeah. Usually that would mean a lot more movies than we have, but you're very busy <laughs> with yeah. the, the new furniture, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, because of all the Christopher Plummer movies that I watched, the TCM Fest movies that I watched, and a lot of stuff I had to watch for work recently, mm. I'm not including on the, uh, on the movie journal, we don't have as many as we yeah. could. But we still have a lot to get to, so why don't you tell us what you've been watching? All right, so I do have a number of rewatches uh, that's kind of padding out my list here, but many of them are movies that I am very familiar with but haven't seen in quite a while. Um, but a friend who is sort of somewhat recently gotten into movies uh, has uh, been coming over and we watch some like classic movies. And the first of them is Dr. Strange lover, how I learned to stop wearing and love the bomb. And the thing that, that, I mean, I've seen this movie countless times and I'm certainly not going to say anything that new about it, but I think one of the things that I love about it is like it, it is a silly movie and yet it is all played so very, very straight. Um, right down to like, you could, Outside of the weird title, you could watch the movie for a good mm-hmm. 35 minutes before you realize what it is. Like, it it could seem like just a very straightforward movie about the Cold War and all that. And then, like, it's like, oh, that guy's name is kind of weird. And then it's just that. It's like Buck Turgeson. That's weird. It's kind of an odd name. And then, like... But also, they, like, had uh, an old movies. I guess I was just talking on the... You weren't on the TCM uh, film festival wrap up episode, but the, uh, the movie uh, Ride the High Country has a character named Heck Longtree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just a great, so like, just, guy in a Western yeah. name. So someone could watch that <laughs> and just say, like, yeah, you know, uh, I guess just old, you know, old movies have weird names. Um, but yeah, and so by the time it arrives, the, 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 the goofiness arrives even that's done with kind of a straight face. And then finally, like in the last 30 minutes, that's when you get like just ridiculous things. And my, my friend who I told him, I told him ahead of time, it was like considered one of the best comedies ever. And I was like, damn, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I had just said (laughs) that it was, that it was like, Oh, it's this, you know, movie made by Stanley Kubrick who was not known for comedy. Um, and, uh, and I, I kicked myself for saying that because then he was like looking for yeah. the absurdity, um, and he and he really loved it. He really spo- he responded unsurprisingly to uh, Keenan Wynn as uh, Bat Guano. You know, you're going to have to answer the Coca Cola company yeah, and stuff like I that. I love him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a film that I just I I admire Stanley Kubrick's restraint in making it and not playing the end 
too early. Right. Um, so that it's, it's so much more satisfying uh, when everything just goes insane. Uh, I watched a film this so long ago. <laughs> I know. I had actually... So I have a rule with the um, movie journals that I, I don't know if I've talked about before because everything that I do has rules. Uh, yeah, I you know, know. I know. That like my... The movies I talk about in the movie journal end when I went to bed the night before. So if I watch a movie the day of a movie journal record, okay. that goes on the next movie journal. Got it. Okay. Just dumb rule that I have. But I have. So I had actually watched this movie before we recorded the most recent movie journal. That's how long it's been since I watched this movie. Um, and uh, why can't I... Uh, Jeff Rosenberg's We Broke Up. This is a new film that I reviewed okay. for the website. Uh, starring... Um, William Jackson Harper from The Good Place and Aya Cash from You're the Worst. Two, so two like great stars of likable recent sitcoms. Yeah. And then the, the, the characters here are, are likable, but it just, uh, the premise is that they are a long time couple who, um, uh, he proposes and that makes her realize that she, doesn't want to be with him forever and so they break up Aww. right before they're supposed to go to her sister's wedding and he's like in the wedding or whatever so they decide to go anyway and not tell the family they broke up okay. so kind of a high concept like sitcom a little farcical premise. in a way but it, like it's, there could be plenty to 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 mine there but it just feels like i don't want to like cast aspersions but it feels like jeff rosenberg just like was someone who like it felt like he was someone who wanted to make a movie, not necessarily this movie. Like he doesn't feel in the movie doesn't feel mm. inspired. It feels like it's sort of playing at being other kinds of, sure. of of movies. Like it can't really commit to being. It's like it, it could either be too wacky, or, or like it would be better if it were wackier, or like it wants to be like more somber, or more romantic, or more bittersweet. And it just it it, it can't. It, it's sort of like skims across these different tones and doesn't ever commit to to any of them. So I'd say watch watch The Good Place and watch You're the Worst. Those are both better showcases for uh for these stars talents. All right, next for me is a film yeah, it's it has been a while since I since I saw this. Uh and I hate to say it, I've forgotten the name of the director and I don't have it in front of me, but I saw the movie Burning. Uh, oh yeah. Which I um yeah. Yeah, like it's. Why am I trying to blank on the director's name? I, I don't know. It's uh, it's strange, but uh, yeah, you've you've seen it, right? Yeah, saw it at uh, oh, uh, Lee Cheng Dong. Yes, yes, that's his name. I saw it at TIFF twenty eighteen. I the Ryerson Theater. That was why, the, why are you saying it like that? <laughs> Just because I'm gonna miss. There's probably not gonna be a TIFF. This year in person, I think, because uh, Canada is a little stricter right now. I think. And, well, also they've had more recent like sure. uh, breakouts, at least by their standards. I feel like, uh, <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> uh, I, I don't think there's going to be a full TIFF again. The way there is apparently going to be a full Sundance in January mm-hmm. 2022. They announced dates. That'll be great. So it will. By the time I finally go back to TIFF, presumably in 2022, it will have been. Uh, three years since my last one. So I guess I'm just feeling wistful. That's why I'm sure. like the Ryerson. Ah, the Ryerson. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so burning. Yeah. What a, what a fascinating movie it is. And one that it took me a while to not even necessarily warm up to it. That's uh, not a pun. Um, but it's, 
and not even not even like figure it out because I don't think I have it figured out. I don't think it's a movie that can be easily figured out, um, especially. But there are enough like little elements involved so that you start to question what is real. And that's something that I wasn't expecting from this film. I knew that it was going to be like sort of a slow burn, damn it, thriller. Um, <laughs> not trying to do this, everybody. Right. Um, but uh, I knew that it was that. I didn't know that it was quite as um, abstract as, as it was. Um, but I love that. I really, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, first off, I think that it's beautifully written. I think it's gorgeous to look at, and I think the performances are great. But I think just from a, from a writing standpoint, I really respect uh, the structure of it. And again, the, the restraint in not going too far in the, in sort of the almost uh, ethereal direction, but also not uh, like certainly seeming to ground it in reality, but leaving just another uh, enough tonal clues to suggest that there's something that there's more or maybe less going on. And I really love that. I really responded to it. And uh, yeah, it's a film that I found invigorating. And I remember I was reading some reviews of it and just like, uh, some people mentioned that it's maybe a little bit long and it's like, no, I think that, I think it's about long enough to like lull you into yeah. this, this rhythm. Uh, and I, yeah, I really responded to it. Yeah. It's a great movie. I would also highly recommend to you, the listeners, but also to you, Tyler, um, Lee Chang Dong's 2007 film secret sunshine, okay. uh, which is another sort of like long, I mean, it's not only, it's probably about comparable in, in length, um, that I don't really want to say what it's about because he uses his length to sort of like wait until far into the movie to actually reveal mm. like the thing that, uh, it's really about, but it's a, it's a movie that's about grieving and forgiveness, mm. um, in, in ways that aren't, uh, maudlin or sappy at all. Okay. It's a really great movie. Uh, and his movie before that Oasis is the first one of his that I saw which is a very uncomfortable movie which Burning often is too oh yes uh, alright next time I watched a movie that I'm very excited about it was uh, the uh, film Twitter was, uh, was nuts about it the, the week it came out on streaming M.S.C. Ligman's Shiva Baby have oh, you heard of Shiva, Shiva Baby it sounds familiar yes so it's a, it's a new, new film um, about a uh, a, a young woman from a Jewish family in New York City who uh, we learn in the opening scenes, we sort of gather that she is um, engaged in a form of sex work. She's not like a prostitute because she has like one guy, but she's essentially, I guess the term is sugar baby that she like, this guy is married and has a family, but also on the side, he sleeps with, he has like, she's like his, I guess, paid mistress. Mm-hmm. She, uh, that's, that's the arrangement. That's like how she, uh, pays. That's how she makes it ends meet, um, is this, uh, arrangement with this guy. And we, we sort of gather that abstractly in the first scene. We only, a lot of what I said only really starts to clarify as the movie goes on, but basically, so she, that, that she leaves his house in the morning. She has to go back to her own neighborhood because someone in her extended family has died and they're having a shiva, which is, I guess, like a, it's like it. a Jewish wake, I guess. Um, I've, heard, I've heard the term like sitting shiva. Yeah. I've yeah. heard that before. Um, and uh, so she goes to this wake with her family, her, uh, who like there's, we, we get hints of all this back backstory with her family, her family, like what they, the way they're sort of disappointed in her, the way they're proud of her, the way there's been, she's had some, um, 
other, I don't want to get into it, but other sort of like familial scandals go on in the past. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what do you know? This guy is at the ship. He also is in some way connected to this woman. Mm -hmm. Part of, I mean, we don't, Part of there's a running joke that she doesn't entirely know whose shiva they're at um, the entire time, just like everyone that her family knows is there. Um, and so it is a, I would say a comedy. It is a comedy, but it is a comedy of intense discomfort. It is an incredibly tense movie okay. um, about this young woman, like trying not to get fo- found out and also just having a complete internal meltdown uh, mm. about uh, her life at this, uh, at the same time. Um, it's really, really good. Um, really good at uh, establishing uh, tone and pace, establishing, establishing a sense of uh, this community. Um, oh, I forgot to, say who plays her dad in front of the show Med- Fred Melamed oh, uh, and he's fantastic right, of course um, yeah there's I no I can't even spoil it but he has okay. a great scene at the end that um, it's just just when the movie thinks you think the movie is like winding down he comes in and introduces maybe the most uncomfortable element of the entire movie so oh, far boy. and that's where it ends and it's a great scene um, but uh, yeah yeah uh, uh, I think a really sensitive movie, but also really um, uh, uh, assured and bold and confident uh, movie. Also quite funny. I, it's very uncomfortable, but it's okay. also uh, quite funny. There's a part that I, um, as I, I don't like, uh, Natalie's family doesn't make me feel like the odd, you know, Gentile out or right. whatever, but I do kind of relate. So obviously this guy, uh, that she has this relationship with, he brings his wife um, to the to the shiva. She's a, I guess, a shiksa. She's a gentile, <laughs> like, like I am. And um, there, there's a part where she like there's food on the table, and she like including some rugula, which are like cookie type. They're like, delicious. They're very good. Um, and she says that she's gonna have a rugula. And this character's mom is like, it's not arugula, like the salad arugula. Right. But this Diane Agron from Glee is the actor. She's saying like, no, I know, but the Jewish woman like won't hear that she knows yeah. because her job is to correct this Gentile for saying arugula instead of arugula. It's very funny, but very again, very uncomfortable moment. <laughs> that reminds me so much of this thing that bothers me. I was in like second grade, and uh, we were learning about money. And I'm getting angry now as I talk about it. I'm so mad at this teacher. Uh, And essentially, she was talking, uh, again, early days talking about money. So she's like, you know, how do you make $2? And so I was like, oh, well, it's, you know, it could be eight quarters or whatever. And then I said, two dollar bills meaning two one dollar bills yeah but she heard it as two dollar bills and she said oh there's no two dollar bill and at first it bothered yeah at first it bothered me that she misheard me yeah or misunderstood me in retrospect yeah when i came to realize that there is such a thing as a two dollar bill it just doesn't really it's not really in circulation very yeah, i don't much. know if they make them anymore but uh yeah, yeah there certainly was when i thing. was in in second yeah. grade there was in retrospect i was like that horrible <laughs> teacher like what is 
I'm furious. I'm I, again. I am mad now yeah. on two <laughs> levels. This would this could have been an opportunity to say yes. There are two dollar bills. They're very. Ra- it's an opportunity to teach about money, which hypothetically she was doing at that moment. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> All right. Anyway. <laughs> um, where, where were we? Uh, yeah, you're up next. Uh, I watched Palm Springs. Oh. Which I I liked a lot. I feel like it does a pretty good job with its premise. I think it does a pretty good job of differentiating itself enough from something like Groundhog Day. Um, Andy Samberg, very uh, appealing. I forget the name of his co-star. Christina Milioti? Yes. Is that her name? Is that it? No, I don't remember. Sorry, I don't have letterbox in front of me, and that's usually what I uh, keep my... Well, you keep talking. Yeah, uh, I lost it. Okay. uh, Oh, uh, Kristen. Not, I said Christina. It's okay. Kristen Milioti. I, I love her. I think mm-hmm. she's really charismatic, and it's always nice to see. She J- was uh, J. Jordan Belfort's and... first wife in The Wolf of Wall Street, oh, okay. pre Margot, the the woman he left for Margot Robbie. I haven't seen that movie since I saw it in the theater. I was, I own it. I'd like to watch it again, but uh, yeah, it's a time commitment. Mm-hmm. But but I will. You know what? I'll sleep great because I'll be laughing the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I'll be exhausted by the end. Um, so yeah, I like. I think they have a good chemistry and I really like the, the, I think a pretty, the pretty subtle way that it brings in, that it uses this very unusual circumstance to sort of comment on obviously relationships and that sort of thing. And so like there's certain phrases that are used throughout, like the idea that he can die and then come back and he's back the next day. Like the death is not that big of a deal, but he keeps coming back to this idea. It's like, the pain is real. Oh yeah. Like I remember, you remember the pain and it's like, okay, that's something to pay attention to. Cause he says it a few times. Now he's talking about it as physical pain, but given how reluctant he is to, to commit to something that is already very obviously going on with her, uh, it really speaks to just kind of who he is. And, and the film is certainly about him maturing and getting to a, a certain point. And I, I really love. The, I don't remember if it's the last scene, but the last one between him and and uh, J.K. Simmons, oh, where they're right. back in the they're back in this loop, and J.K. Simmons has that familiarity, and then he discovers Andy Samberg is like, oh no, he's he's out. He does not remember me because we've never actually met, according to him. Mm-hmm. And just the look on J.K. Simmons' face, like, is really touching. I thought. Because it's a look yeah. of hope that he can get out of this thing. So it's there's a lot there, and yet somehow it never quite it's never quite as like impactful as I wanted it to be. It's not quite as funny as I want it to be. It's it ha- like I give it like a solid B plus because there's enough there is enough there that I responded to, but as a whole it never quite added up for me. I think the things that bother you bother me more. I would give it maybe more of a C C plus maybe not a, maybe just a C because I think I think the movie's problem is that it want it's it's too scared of you not liking sure uh, Andy Samberg's character because there are things about him that, that are unlikable mm-hmm. and it feels like the movie is trying to like get you to not pay too close attention to those things or apologize for them right. whereas I feel like I think I said this on the movie journal when I watched it there's a part of the movie where Kristen Milioti disappears for a while mm-hmm. and I feel like 
that would have been an interesting opportunity to be one of those movies that switches protagonists. Sure. If if at that point we would spent time with if she became the lead of the movie, yeah. we could see how the things that he's done while maybe, you know, I think the movie could be smart enough to make them understandable, even sympathetic could see how, how it would, it would be, it would, it would, the movie might be okay with admitting that he, that Andy Samberg's character could, uh, has done some terrible things. And the film does shift perspective, uh, earlier, uh, like, when oh, for she, a little bit, yeah. for just a moment, like yeah, when she's like realizing that. what's going on. Yeah. So it wouldn't be out of, yeah, out of nowhere for it to do that. Um, but I'm doing the thing Roger Ebert said not to do, which is reviewing the movie I wish I'd seen. Yeah, but <laughs> what do you do when you wish you'd seen a better movie? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Uh, next up for me is um, uh, Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini's Things Heard and Seen. If you recognize the names Sherry Springer Berman and Robert, Robert Pulcini, they made um, American Splendor. Yes. Um, so they're not the people you'd think of to make a uh, 70s or 80s period piece horror movie. Um, that, okay, actually, this is... Uh, um, I spent a lot of the movie confused by what year it was. Okay. Because it starts with a title card that says Winter 1980. Okay. It doesn't give a month. It says Winter 1980. And then it, and then it jumps back. It, so it's sort of like an in media res type of starting. Okay. And then it jumps back to like nine months previously and then the rest of the movie catches up to that. Oh, all right. So I was under the impression because when I hear Winter 1980, I'm thinking January, February 1980. Sure. And so I thought the rest of the movie was taking place in 1979. I see. Okay. And then it, it wasn't until the end that I realized like, oh, when they said Winter 1980, I guess they meant December 1980. Sure. It just seems like it, yeah. it, it's winter, not important. Winter it, starts December 1st, as you well know. It doesn't, but <laughs> in the case, no matter which version of the seasons you go by, mine or yours, yeah. most of winter takes place in the True. next year. And I, I do think that, I mean, this is, this certainly is not true. There's a certain cultural bias here, but it's like, yeah, winter is January, February. December is just Christmas or Hanukkah, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, yeah. you just kind of, you, you're rounding to the nearest huge holiday. Um, that kind of dominates that month. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, no, I'm not going to, I'll save that for the Patreon. For okay. The journal. I was going to say something about the sure. Australian show. Please like me. Okay. Australia. The, okay. What I was going to say, I won't get too into it. I'll talk about the movie journal or the TV journal, but, uh, Christmas is still in December in Australia, but it's summer there. And it's, yeah. so there's a Christmas episode of please like me. And it's just weird. Oh, uh, I'm from sure. my point yes. of view. It's just yes. weird. Um, all right. Um, so things heard and seen is a, a horror movie that I apparently liked more than most, uh, critics. I didn't love it or anything, but, um, I think, uh, it's got a, a, a terrific, um, uh, look to it. It's, uh, shot by, uh, and now I've forgotten his name already. But um, the same guy who shot uh, Calvary, which is, um, sorry, Calvary. There we go. Not Calvary. Calvary. Uh, uh, Larry Smith. That's why I forgot his name. It's a very, you know. Sounds fake. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so it's it's got a sort of sinister beauty to it, the way that Calvary does. Um, it's It's got... Um, colors that feel sort of like saturated and desaturated at the same time, which kind of feels like a, as a, from a horror movie's perspective, perspective, it reminded me of like the ring. Oh, it's okay. a different color 
palette than the ring, but it's that type of color texture. Okay. Um, it also uh, is a school of it's a school of horror that I like that tends to get me with the scares, which is not the like a thing pops out or a thing makes a loud noise. Sure, it's the the camera moves past a thing and so it's just there. Oh yeah, it's already it's like yeah. already there. So like she hears a noise, the kind of fear that is only possible because because film is what it is. Like yeah, yeah, if something's outside the frame, it doesn't exist, and then suddenly it does. Yeah, there's so there like there's a scene where she uh, Amanda and I also like that it's Amanda Seyfried. I'm a huge fan of Amanda Seyfried. Um, I make no apologies for that. Why would I? She's great. I think um, these days you don't need to. Um, so like she hears a noise. She's home alone at night. She hears a noise. She goes. She goes downstairs to investigate it. Like in the garage, and the camera's just like in one place tracking her as she's moving from the living room. And then she passes in front of the basement stairs to go to the garage. She doesn't look down the basement stairs, but because the camera goes past it, we're able to see that there's a sort of shrouded figure, like uh, old crone woman, just Oof. standing there in the in the in the stairwell. That's rough. Uh, I, I like those kind of scares. They they yeah. tend to get me. Um, Although because of Paul F. Tompkins' wonderful bit about the uh, monster <laughs> in the mirror, it's hard not to think of that. Uh, yeah, but that's a different. It's a different it's a, sort. Cliche. It's a subset yeah. of that because yeah. it's like. That's, that's the it's not there then it's there yeah but this was like she was just standing there the whole time yeah. the whole time the camera was there before yes. it even got to her she was yeah. there um uh yeah i'm uh, uh i'm a big fan of that kind of horror this is the rare horror movie i actually convinced my wife to watch with me because she's a um uh, scaredy cat when it comes to horror movies mm-hmm. and she has an even bigger to that kind of thing she's like <laughs> <laughs> just this great big reaction so um yeah, I uh, uh, I liked it. Um, also has uh, Karen Allen is in it. Okay. And uh, Rhea Seahorn from uh, Better Call Saul. Oh, which uh, I've never seen. Yeah, she's a breakout star of Better Call Saul, and she's mm-hmm. uh, she's in this. I like her. So, things heard and seen. I liked it. I'm like uh, Christopher Moltisanti with Kundun. I liked hey. it. <laughs> the next time you see them, you know, in the store, grocery store or something like that, yeah. just yell it from across the room. Yeah. Uh, I saw a film that may actually be on your list. Okay. I don't remember if you mentioned it in this or the okay. last movie journal, which is Simon McCoy's Mortal Kombat. Oh, that's actually next to my list. Bam. There you go. All right. So get ready because then we're going to talk about this and then you're going to go again. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't like it at all. I read your review and other reviews, and yet I was like, well, look, I'm going to watch this, and I know I'm probably not going to like it, but I have to watch it. I don't know why I decided that. My time is precious. I could have devoted time to something I thought I might like. There, I have so many problems with this movie, and it's... it's ugh choreography is not bad that's that that i like yeah there's some decent fights like the 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 whole like opening sequence i thought was like not not bad it Uh, wasn't bad if it were a completely different movie um but i I guess at that point i'm watching it i didn't know the movie was going to be i was like oh it's going to be this movie this is interesting like a an actual sort of like uh uh martial arts like historical epic type thing i was like that's that's an interesting take yeah but uh no but i like i still like the fights i like that there's a part where sub-zero slashes a guy the guy starts bleeding sub-zero freezes the guy's blood in midair grabs it and stabs the guy with his own blood that's very cool i like that sort of thing i wish there were more inventive mortal Kombat things like that to me uh 
this film is exactly why fan service is a horrible thing. Because when you think, okay, so there's a few things. When you play Mortal Kombat with your friend, yes, there is a story within there, officially, but you could be Scorpion, your friend could be Sonya Blade, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and it, there's no good, in that situation, It's not there's no good guy and bad guy, it's just you versus your friend, and that's it. And whoever you're fighting, or let's say it's you going against like the computer or whatever, whoever you're fighting is your enemy. It could be Liu Kang. It could be Johnny Cage. Officially heroes, mm-hmm. but you need to kill them because that's how this works. Right. Okay, so your so all finishing moves. What was that? I found the thing you texted me while you were watching it. Oh, what did I? <laughs> this is just the line. My lineage. I'm an orphan from the south side of Chicago. <laughs> I forgot that. That's oh my god! Yeah, so I, so I think that, uh, terrible dialogue already. But yeah, I think so, I saw someone else tweet the line that's just like the line "Get to Gary, Indiana." It's just a weird <laughs> thing for a movie to say. Yeah, it's uh, so so. That's the thing is like fin- and like finishing moves are just cool things you do. But now we're watching a movie. Now there are heroes and villains. So when Jax, one of our heroes, smashes someone's head, which is a finishing move from the video game. Okay. So it's the kind of thing where fans are like, here we go. Jax is going to smash someone's head. It's like, you know, he's our hero, right? That seems vindictive to me. And so it's just like, you're Uh doing a video game thing, but I feel like it's actually hurting at least for me, the story. It's making our hero seem infinitely less heroic. Similarly, I don't believe that Scorpion, as depicted in this movie, would ever say, get over here. Well, especially because it's the only thing he says in English the entire movie. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. it's a, it, But that's his line. Yeah. He's got to say it. Yeah, no, I noticed that. And that it, was it's really just, weird. it's that sort of thing. And then, like, someone saying, like, then, like, Liu Kang, like, uh, lighting Cabal on fire with his fire dragon and then says fatality. It's like, why would you say that? You're saying it because, you, you know, we need to hear it. And it's just the kind of thing. It's like, do you have so... Okay, there are two options here. Do you have so little faith in your audience that you think they won't go along with this if they don't hear their precious catchphrases? Or do you know exactly the audience you're dealing with it and they will be angry if they don't hear their precious catchphrase? I think it's probably the latter because I think a lot of people, there's a lot of people who really like this movie. Yeah, I mean, those people are idiots. <laughs> uh, and this is not a thing I say lightly. This movie, I feel like, is just, I'm so, I was willing to turn a lot of shit off in my brain to watch this thing. And it just kept, whether, whether it be with the fan service and just like, and stuff like, like Kung Lao. Look, he's got his uh, odd job hat that cuts people up. I get it. Okay. But when he turns it into a table saw that then cuts this thing, this uh, uh, Valkyrie looking uh, villain, it's like now it seems genuinely sadistic. Mm-hmm. And these are our heroes. Like it's it's but you're not you're not supposed to think in those terms. You're supposed to think, oh, that's an awesome Kung Lao finishing move. It's like, yes, but this is a different thing. This is a movie, not a video game. And so when you try to port this stuff over from a video game, you need to create a, uh, a movie with characters that will fit that. Meanwhile, you create a completely new character as our endpoint, which seems like an odd choice. Now, I don't exactly remember where he's from or what his lineage is, <laughs> but, uh, you know, 
or what part of the city he might be yeah. from. But that's, and that's the other thing is like, I totally forgot that line and I forgot that I texted <laughs> to you, but holy shit, that is, that's a gr- that is a good example of just how awful yeah. the movie is on, on so many levels, including and especially the dialogue whether it be fan service or otherwise. Yeah. The di- uh, you said everything that really needs to be said. What I'll say, um, is, uh, the, the bad dialogue is at its worst when it's trying to be funny. Oh, uh, my, it's yeah. so bad at the comic relief that like the character of Kano, is yeah. that his name, who's supposed to be the comic relief. He's just fucking awful. He's just an awful, awful person. And he's obnoxious yeah. and he's not funny. It's an odd choice to make him Kano in the world of, of mortal combat mm-hmm. is a, just an awful person. Like he's a okay. monster. Uh, so to make him the comic relief is an odd choice. Um, uh, but, I, uh, and I think that actor could have pulled it off if there, if he had better stuff. Okay. Case in point. So I watched Mortal Kombat, hated it. I was like, I hate this Kano guy. And then my wife and I start finally watching Superstore. Okay. And there's a recurring role of the pharmacist who like thinks he's better than everybody. And he's really funny on the show. And I was like, that actor looks familiar. And it's, it's oh, Josh Lawson. There so you go. Cle- this is clearly a funny guy. Yeah. Um, just the dialogue was terrible. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's taken care of too. Uh, you're up next. All right. Uh, what is next for me? Let's take a look. Oh, I gotta. I need to look up the uh, the director's name here. It is a. I watched a surprising amount of Hulu documentaries. I'll just say that. Um, and the first was Hillbilly by Sally Rubin and Ashley York, um, which is very similar to the, a movie that I I watched a few years ago called American Chaos that I reviewed for the uh, the show uh, the the website. Pardon me. Okay. Um, in which uh, this this woman in like 2006 who is from Kentucky and then moved to Los Angeles and became like a documentarian and very left leaning and all that, but still had a great deal of affection for her where she came from. Mm-hmm. And then of course you get the primary in 2015 and then you get the election, of Donald Trump or the, the, the campaign and all of her family who previously were like lifelong Democrats are now very much in the Trump camp. And she's like, how did this happen? So she does. So, but then she also listens to the way a lot of her friends are talking about the people from Appalachia and Southerners and that sort of thing. And the term hillbilly comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. So she goes back home and she's like visiting her family and, and, and she also winds up just kind of delving into the stereotype of the hillbilly or the Appalachian or whatever it is. And really, it's a deep dive. I really appreciate that. She investigates, uh, not investigates, she interviews all kinds of like professors who've specialized in this sort of thing. And she shows clips from various like movies, TV shows, song, just everything. And you come to realize like, holy shit, like this is rough. Like, people from these places through no fault of their own, just happening to be from those places are just so looked down upon. And then of course I realize I've done it, you know, as you know, when I do my dumb, gl- <laughs> dumb my guy dumb voice, guy voice, yeah. uh, I just go Southern with it because it's just, it's a shorthand. And she goes and interviews the guy who played the, the banjo picking kid from deliverance. Uh-huh. Um, she interviews Michael Apted. Like she, it's pretty thorough and just really explores like how one gets to a place where 
there's an entire portion of the country that everyone is totally fine dismissing. And one thing that she, in, in her, as she looks at the history, she realizes that like, Hey, this is coal country. So you had, so decades ago you had coal industry, the coal industry wanting to basically come in and just take everything over. But they understood that like, well, if they're seen as coming in and taking over small town America, people aren't going to be on board with them. So the idea of the, of the small town person in Appalachia being stupid and poor Mm. and bigoted and trashy. That was started a lot by these companies who realize like now no one's going to give a shit if we come in and treat these people like trash because everyone thinks they're trash, white trash. In fact, Mm. it's a, it's, it's a, it's such a fascinating documentary and one that I, you know, to use a Christian term, I feel very convicted by. And I realized like, Hey, even though like I lived in Southern Missouri and I befriended a lot of people that other people would view as, as rednecks or hillbillies. Uh, and yet even then coming out of that and, and go, you know, uh, living in Chicago and living in kind of urban areas, mm-hmm. um, I myself will look down on, on people who sound a certain way or from a certain area. And, uh, it's a really interesting documentary and, yeah. I, and one that I, that is, uh, definitely, is a, uh, 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 Hulu is where Hulu. I found it. Okay. And, uh, a, a nice exercise in empathy. I thought, uh, all right. I watched a movie from the country of, I can't remember, I think Iceland, um, called the County. Okay. Well, now I have to look up where it's from. Um, and I don't know how to do that. Uh, any, anyway, um, it's directed by the, a guy named uh, Grimmer Hakonarsson, who a few years ago made a movie called Rams, uh, which I liked quite a bit. And then Rams was recently remade in English. I think it is a New Zealand or, or Australia with Sam Neill. Hmm. Um, I didn't see the remake. Same name? Was it? Was it the same title? Uh, yeah, it's also called Rams. Uh, and that one's about, it takes place in a small, small farming community and it's about two brothers who have competing sort of ram farm, like sheep farms, um, and uh, haven't talked to each other for decades. And it's like kind of a uh, comedy about, you know, family not getting along, but it's also a, um, a window into, I guess kind of maybe what you're talking about, uh, about with hillbilly, except the, uh, I want to say Iceland, the Icelandic version of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, small town farmers. Um, the County takes place in the same kind of, uh, world. It's about, a um, a woman whose husband, a dairy farmer in this case, um, her husband, um, dies very suddenly and, um, she partially because they're very deeply in debt and she sort of realizes how, how much the local dairy co-op that all the local farmers belong to, um, works to essentially keep farmers in debt to keep them under their thumb that they essentially work as like a protection, like organized crime type Mm. of racket. And so she decides to start speaking out. And it's one of those things like I actually had to look it up to make sure it wasn't based on a true story because it has that like Aaron Brockovich, Veronica Guerin type of like uh, feel where it's kind of expecting your belief in the, inspiration and inspiring this inspirationality mm-hmm. of the thing to do the work of making the movie good where it's, sure. uh, it's, it, I, I really, I really didn't like it. I found it kind of uh, flat. It's not based on a true story. Um, and it doesn't, I mean, the thing Rams is funny and the County is very rarely, hmm. is there any sense of levity? And I feel like that's, uh, even like when she like, 
uh, acts out by like <laughs> spraying, like hosing the co-op's offices down with milk <laughs> from her uh, cows. It's not really played for laughs. And I, I like, I, I don't, uh, I didn't really respond to it. So that's the County. Don't, I guess okay. don't watch it. Hulu documentary. Number two, here okay. we go is Soleil Moon Fry's Kid 90. Do you know anything about it? Uh, no, I know who Soleil Moon Fry is. Yeah. He owns that uh, store in Larchmont, right? The baby clothes store? Maybe. I know her as Punky Brewster. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I was like, trying okay. to pick the other thing I know yeah. about her. Uh, I was just in Larchmont uh, looking at uh, various okay. stores. But, it is Icelandic. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, so it's... A, it's I'm just a, looking up to see if I'm right about the, where I appreciate the store that. is. Um and we might have, who knows, we might have actually uh, stopped in because uh, we were just kind of hanging out in Larchmont Village and uh, checking out stores and stuff. Bought a really nice uh, illustrated uh, or partially illustrated copy of uh, Treasure Island for when the, the kids get a little older. Oh. Um, so uh, Kid 90 is the kind of thing that I feel like I would be instinctively frustrated by because it could seem like sort of a vanity project or self-indulgent or whatever it is. Um, but essentially, so Suleiman Fry, who, who played Punky Brewster, so she was, you know, a huge star when she was a little girl. Um, and, and then uh, she got older and she continued to act in various capacities. But from like age six or seven, she bought like a video camera and just documented everything. Like from like she had the the mindset to do that from when she was a little kid, and so she as an adult now all these years all these decades later she's gone back and like looked at this footage and just put it all together and got sort of a glimpse of not merely her own childhood but the childhood of childhoods of so many young actors at that time mm-hmm. because just for whatever reason uh, Solomon Fry's mom's house. Cause she, uh, her, her dad wasn't really in the picture. Um, but, uh, her mom's house was like the place to hang out for young stars. So you see all of these young people, they could be musicians, they could be film actors, they could be TV actors, whatever. And they're all just hanging out with her. And it was a bit of a safe haven, but one, so the, so you're watching that and you're seeing, you're, you're feeling like nostalgic for these people. And then you come to realize what the that the film is is about more than her, and it's a it's probably more about the treacherous just the the treacherous life of a child star. Because then you start to see, oh, there's Jonathan Brandis, and there's mm. uh, a couple of the act uh, sort of non actors from the movie Kids, and there's this person, there's that person, and she's like drugs suicide drugs suicide and i think by the end of the documentary it's like eight or nine people um that have come into her life and then exited um i think brad renfro's in there um and so and and she's in it she interviews some actor some of these people like uh many years later like steven dorf and brian austin green uh and she interviews uh, Mark Paul Gossler and he says something really interesting. He goes like, he says, you know, you may be a kid and they may 
they may, they may understand that you're a kid and that you're playing a kid, but the industry doesn't stop being an adult industry. And like the minute you step on the set, you may play a kid, but you are expected to be an adult. And he's like, that is why I want to keep my children miles away Mm -hmm. from this industry. And you just like, it really can like screw a person up. And, uh, and the fact that yes, you have these retrospective sort of talking head interviews, but often commenting on footage from the time. So you do get that immediacy that I think if it had only been a retrospective, I think it wouldn't have been quite as impactful. But when you, when you have this, you know, an answering machine message from Jonathan Brandis talking about how much he, and he's clearly like in a rough place and wants to talk to her because it's, it would be comforting. You're just like, okay, that is something that you can't recreate. That is something that in the moment and in retrospect is just a very sad and and tragic thing. It's a very impactful film. And I really, and I like that it's a little bit amorphous. Again, it's about her, but it's also about just being a kid in the nineties, which is to say maybe the first time that like kids are able to be documented in their real life because of video camera technology. Um, and then just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting film that, that certainly has a structure, but you're not a hundred percent sure what it's trying to do so much as it is, as it is just trying to put you there with her. And, uh, yeah, I recommend it. It's very sad of course at times, but, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a good film, Kid Ninety. All right, um, you just talked about a sad thing, and I was going to go back and talk about her store. Uh, but, oh, okay. uh, speaking of sad, I guess it is sad. Uh, her her store, her eco friendly kids clothing store, The Little Seed, has been closed for nearly a decade. Oh my! Opened in two thousand seven. Uh, last Yelp review I could find was from March of twenty twelve. Wow. So I'm not sure, uh, but it's not there anymore. That's uh, that's how long I've lived in Los Angeles. That's also how long I've lived. Uh, in the valley that probably the last time I was in Larchmont Village it was probably still sure. there it's been that long because I used to go you know my last my last apartment before I moved to the valley was uh, not in Larchmont Village but close enough it was by, over by Paramount Studios you remember mm-hmm. you know and so I would go to like the Larchmont Farmer's Market and go like get bagels at Noah's at that, that, that particular mm-hmm. Noah's in, in the morning I used to go to Larchmont a lot and it's weird to realize that I probably haven't been there since 2010 <laughs> um, anyway uh, Larchmont's nice uh, all right. Uh, next movie I watched is called Four Good Days. Tyler, do you have? I'm sure we all have these uh, as, uh, as 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 film as film buffs, um, uh, directors who like. You're probably in terms of how many of the movies you like, it's probably fifty fifty. And yet every time you hear this director has a new movie out, you're like, I want to see that. There probably is. I can't. I yeah, can't I'm, place I'm it, sure. If, sure I, there if is, I didn't yeah. have one in mind, I wouldn't be able yeah. to think of it all the top of my head either. But um, for me, one of those directors, J.J. Abrams, is, he's one. Okay, um, Rodrigo Garcia, who okay. made the last days of uh, last days in the desert. Yeah. Um, he made um, Mother Agora, and Child. I believe. Uh, what is it called? Is it called Agora? Am I? I don't think I, I saw might be thinking one. of somebody else. Um, but I think that's him. I might be wrong. But. Um, so his new movie is called Four Good Days, which is a movie that if you described uh the plot to me i would say no thank you um i'm i'm wrong i'm thinking of a different film okay um but you've seen last days in the desert yes so you know uh what this guy's whole deal mm-hmm. is <laughs> or at least part of his yeah, deal. i get it um uh he's also like he did a bunch of um in treatment episodes and uh what was that other hbo in treatment tell back. me you love me yeah but with now with gabriel, gabriel Byrne. Byrne. it's uh uzo aduba 
Uh, that sounds right to me. I, I only saw um, the trailer for it yesterday. I yeah, I'm planning on watching it. Uh, anyway, okay, so the plot... All right, you and I have talked about this with, like, Holocaust movies, that it's, like, it's it's a terrible thing. I don't want to sound crass, but, like, when there's a new Holocaust movie, it feels like... I don't need to... Like, there's such... There's so many familiar beats to those kind of movies that it almost feels like... Um, uh, it almost becomes disrespectful that like it's like a genre unto itself. That's, you know, that's the thing that I have said, and this might be a little too dismissive on my part because I'm sure people are well-meaning. But like, if you're not bringing anything new to this, right. then I feel like you're just getting instant. You're you're just looking for instant credibility because um, people aren't going to criticize this thing unless it's Jacob the Liar. Um, right. You know, they're not gonna they're not gonna <laughs> criticize this thing because you're so well intentioned. So Four Good Days is not a Holocaust movie. It's okay. another kind of movie that I had the same general reaction to, which is it's a drug addict movie. Sure. And that's another one like the recent uh, Cherry had all of the stupid like uh, oh it's so sad like oh look how desperate they are sure. or whatever that that sort of uh, uh, bullshit. Uh, but Four Good Days is a, a movie in which uh, Glenn Close plays a uh, uh, a woman who has. Um, uh, I think you and I talked about this. Um, I can't remember if it was on the podcast or not, but uh, Stephen Root is her husband, um, but her second husband, mm-hmm. her daughter from her uh, first marriage is p- played by Mila Kunis, and she has been uh, an addict for a decade mm-hmm. or so. She comes back, um, and there's like this. Uh, the idea uh, Glenn Close takes her to the to a doctor. The doctor says there's like this um, experimental treatment you qualify for, um, but you have to be you have to have all the drugs out of your system before we can mm-hmm. give it to you to make you sick or it won't work or whatever. And so Glenn Close, who is like kept Mila Kunis, like she's at the part of of being family member of an addict, where it's like I can't let you stay with me anymore. Yeah. That sort of cut off. but so she has to finally give in and say like, okay, you can stay with me until this is out of your system. Four days. That's where the title comes from. Four good days. Um, so yeah, if you described that plot to me, I I would not have, um, I don't need to see me the Kunis, you know, uh, scratching her arm and like doing all the, uh, addict things. But, uh, that's not, this is really more a movie about a mother and a daughter. It's more a movie. It's less movie about me, the Kunis than it is about Glenn close, about Mm -hmm. being, um, uh, uh, a parent to an addict. And crucially, it's a movie about a woman who you realize has not always been a great parent. And the movie doesn't try and say like, Oh, she was a bad parent. Thus, like there are no easy solutions, but, uh, really this is just a movie about messy people, people who have made mistakes in their life, who continue to make mistakes, who will, who will make mistakes in the future, who will hurt one another, but there, there's also connection and family. It's just, it's a really, really good, uh, just, Hmm. I guess, uh, I don't know, domestic drama. I'm sure. not sure what else you'd, uh, how else you'd, you'd classify it. It helps. I mean, I named, uh, I think Glenn Close, Stephen Rudy, Mila Kunis are all very talented yeah. actors. So that's, uh, that's definitely, uh, I'm always interested when like an actor who's associated with like goofiness and extreme performances when they get the opportunity to play like a real person. Cause I'm sure <laughs> Stephen Root is, I love him in all those other roles. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I'm sure he's, he's great in this. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, um, he's used well, but sparingly sure. in the movie, uh, because as it's part of the story that he's not her, her father. Yeah. So he's not like, he's only ever known her as an, as an addict. So he mostly yeah. just like tries to stay away from her. Uh, also, um, 
Josh Leonard plays uh, Mila Kunis' ex, oh. uh, I can't remember, ex-boyfriend or ex-husband or whatever. Um, I love seeing him in yeah. movies. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know that he's the one, when I watched Blair Witch Project, that I would have thought that he's the one I would have picked to, like, yeah. to, to have the career, because he's kind of, like, the most muted of the three in that in that movie. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen it. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, I can see that. He, he didn't seem like a standout, but he's... Uh, no. He's had a... Uh, a great career. All right, uh, move, moving on. So my this this next section is going to be uh, some rewatches. The okay. first is uh, Jason Reitman's Up in the Air, a film I haven't seen in probably ten years. I was just thinking about that movie. It's great. Like I mean, I liked it at the time, and I remember at the time I said, like, oh, this movie might be perfect. Um, yeah, I think I agree with myself <laughs> at this point. Um, which is uh, more rare than one might think. But I think it's just, it's, it's this, a, a wonderful blend of humor and drama. And I like that you have a character who is in a, in a place where he's being confronted with his own loneliness, his own stubbornness. Uh, and yet at no, and yet he's so effortless as a person and Clooney is effortless as, as an actor in this film that it never feels that that heavy but we're dealing with big stuff and one of course marvelous performance by vera farmiga again speaking of effortless like the two of them have such chemistry uh anna kendrick is delightful um but i think what i want to talk about without going into too much detail because people maybe haven't seen it is the the ending the uh, grand gesture that his character uh embarks upon So that moment is something that I responded to at the time, but I think as I've gotten older uh, and I've experienced different things in my own life, that scene really has resonance with me. Um, Jen and I have, have uh, discussed this concept that we refer to as confirmed, where we have just individually in regards to each other or other people, we have a very untrusting attitude and assume that this other person could be a stranger, Mm -hmm. could be a friend, whatever, that they're going to disappoint us in a very specific way. And this is why we don't trust people. And then they do it. And we're like, ah, confirmed. Now, What's funny is that in that moment, it's feel, it feels like an indictment of this other person. In actuality, confirm, the idea of confirmed is an indictment of me. Right. Uh, yeah. And what I love is that that moment, the character, of course you feel disappointed with him, and, and rightfully so. He was hoping for something, and he broke his routine in order to uh, achieve this thing, only for it to not work out. And the film... And there's a clear confirmed there. And the film ends on a note where it could be hopeful because he's standing in front of this board looking at places he could possibly go. And so maybe he's following somebody's advice and he's just going to go and travel and, and do something a little freewheeling. Or you also have his boss saying, hey, we need you back on the road. And I remember this. I love this line. And I like the way Jason Bateman says he goes, we're just going to let you sail and sail. And just like. So this could be that he's looking at that board thinking of what this other person said, but in Mm -hmm. actuality, he's just going to go back to what he was always doing. And I like that 
there's enough ambiguity in the performance and in the writing and in the tone of the film that you that it could be either one but it is rooted in this idea of i knew it i knew that i was right to not do this thing and now like that was the last shred of of risk he was ever he's ever going to take and now it's or maybe he feels like i'm going to come back from this i th- i don't think i was wrong to do it I'm going to take another chance, whatever that chance might be. And I love that there's that ambiguity there. It feels like the end of Castaway to me. Hmm. Um, and that he is that he's gotten to a place where it could go one way or another is enough of an arc for me. Uh, man, it's a really wonderful movie. I love every part of it. Yeah, I don't know. I can't think of another director who came out of the gate with two movies in a row that I just don't like. Yeah. And then has become a director that I'm, uh, that I'm interested in yeah. now. Is um, he one of the, one of the directors that like, when you see his name, do you think I need to see that? Or do you kind of, yeah, you know, cause there, I never saw Tully. Um, I heard good things about it. So yeah, I haven't seen young adult, uh, a young adult is probably still my favorite of his, of his films, but I need to rewatch up in the air. <laughs> Weirdly of a, the reason I was thinking about it today was I was trying to think of, uh, whether or not I would consider it a good St. Louis movie hmm. because, Part of it takes place in St. Yeah. Louis, and there's and he a, certainly talks up Lambert a Field monologue about yeah. uh, the architect. But most of the movie was shot in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff you're seeing, no matter what city in the country it's playing, uh, was shot in St. Louis. And yeah. So I don't know. if I was trying to think if that counts as a. But I guess part of it. This all. This is this is one of the things I think about while I'm walking my dog. This all started with. Does some like it hot? count as a San Diego, a good San Diego movie because San Diego is playing Miami. Oh, but they're, they shoot it entirely at Coronado and the hotel Coronado, which is a landmark and is very, very, if you're from SoCal or from San Diego, very recognizably it's Coronado, but it's pretending to be Miami. So does that count? And so I was trying to think of other examples of movies that don't, that like use places, uh, to be other other things. So, uh, listeners, how about you weigh in? Is like, something like, like it hot a good a good San Diego movie? Like, granted, Gotham City doesn't exist, but is The Dark Knight a good Chicago movie? Right. Oh, that's a good one. But The Dark Knight Rises is a Pittsburgh movie. It is. Yes. Um, all right. Uh, moving on to. Um, I wish I could think of the name of the city in Cliff Walkers uh, because it was a it's a Chinese city I had not heard of. Hmm. But uh, Zhang Yimou's Cliff Walkers, uh, which is uh, a movie that I once I surrendered to it, I realized, oh, this is a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. This is this is um, the, the the it's it's a spy movie except when you think of spy movies, you think about intricate plots. Yes. Basically, this is a movie about four spies, like uh, who communist uh, trained in the Soviet Union, communist spies, um, which this is a Chinese movie that means good guys, uh, who uh, drop into Japanese uh, occupied China in the 1930s. I guess is that right, or is it 20s? Um, I can't remember. Anyway. Um, immediately they realize their cover has been blown in. So the rest of the movie is then just trying to get out alive. So there's like we, the mission they're on, we get some hint about like, Oh, some information was smuggled out of like a prisoner camp. But like, I don't remember what the mission was. It doesn't really matter. It's basically just, it's just like two hours of a, like a two hour scissor reel of really cool, really lavishly staged, spy shit like Mm. like spy action and thriller tension scenes uh so yeah once i surrendered to the movie and realized there's not 
there's not I'm, I'm, there's not an arc here that I really yeah. need to be invested in. Um, I'm gonna forget who characters' relationships are to one another from scene to scene. Fine, let's just see. How's this guy going to get out of this one? And sure. then how's this guy going to get out? Of, and how's she going to get out of this one? And uh, it's just a series of those, those, uh, those, those kind of scenes. Um, uh, it does in the second half. It has. It actually starts to have a character who is introduced as a villain that you eventually that you come to realize like, oh, he's actually another communist spy who's working undercover in the puppet government. Um, uh, and he actually starts to have a little bit more of an arc, but really Cliff Walker's is just like Zhang Yimou doing some like, you know, being given a lot of money to do some cool shit. It's obviously like, it's a propaganda movie, sure. you know, it's like dedicated to the, uh, communists who fought for, fought against the, uh, Japanese occupation. Um, there's speculation that because Zhang Yimou made a film a couple of years ago that has never been released, um, because it was deemed un. Uh, on, I guess, unpatriotic or, or yeah. whatever, and so there is some speculation that this is him like making a real patriotic one mm. to maybe try and grease the wheels to get his like very personal movie that's supposed to be very good. Interesting. That was like supposed to play Can in 2018, I think, or 19, and like the Chinese government like saying, "Oh, it's not. Sorry, the the fire the film isn't technically ready yet, but like like just like a month or so before the festival, and then mm. it never." It's it's never come out. I don't think it's even been released in China, but it's definitely I, I uh, and I can't remember what it's called. It's an S. You know but, what? Uh, that does it. Thumbs down on communism for me. <laughs> I, it's just not my general. thing. Uh, you know? Yeah, I, I would say thumbs down to the Chinese government for me. We sure. Um, uh, <laughs> leave leave John Cena alone. I don't know if you've heard about this. <laughs> I just heard about it. Yes, fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. Um, all right. Uh, what's next for you? Next is my eighth Sorry. movie. One second, I think, is the movie that he made. Oh, okay. Uh, that never came out. Sorry. Okay. And I just it was driving me crazy. I couldn't think of it. Okay. My eighth movie. Okay. Is uh, a rewatch of Robert Altman's Nashville, my favorite movie of all time. Um, and uh, you know wh- when you. Citizen Kane was my favorite movie for so long, and this is all. Uh, this was the case with that. It's the case with Nashville. Every time I'm about to watch, I'm like, all right, let's see if this really has, if it still has the resonance or am I just propping this up somehow? No, I obviously love Nashville so much. And one thing that I love about it, and I know you don't, I know you don't love it. I'd say, give it another, another watch. I, Not I've to suggest more you, recently and I, I, I warm up to it a little bit. Every time? Every time I, okay. I see it. So I, when I say recently, I mean within the last decade, I've seen it. So The movie always fools me. I've seen it multiple <laughs> times. I know where we're headed. The first half is so cynical that I'm just like, shit, man, this is, you're kind of getting me here, Altman. Like, I, I remember this movie as having more heart. And then the last, and then probably the last 45 minutes, it turns around and suddenly it doesn't compromise but you start to see the complexity of these characters. And to me, I, it's to the point now, I have a hard time saying this without getting choked up. Henry Gibson's character, mm-hmm. who is a joke and a Napoleon-type tyrant for the first two hours of the movie. And, but you know what? For the vast, per, first two and a half hours of the movie. And you think you've got him. You mm-hmm. think you know exactly who this guy is, and you're probably right. 
the f- I mean, he's introduced singing that 200 years song, which right. is unintentionally hilarious. Um, and then spoilers, everybody, the assassination attempt happens and some, and this other performer gets shot and he gets shot in the arm and his wig comes off and people are like coming to say like they're, they're tending to him and he goes, I'm fine. Look like 10, get to her, mm-hmm. you know? And that in itself is like, it goes completely against what we thought this guy would be. And yet somehow I think to the credit of Henry Gibson, he makes it feasible. It's not merely this artificial, like oh, let's redeem this guy before the movie's over. Right. It doesn't feel like that. It feels organic, especially when he goes to the microphone. Oh, this, and he says, this isn't Dallas. This is Nashville. They can't do it. This to here. They can't do this to us here in Nashville. Somebody sing. Yeah. Oh, are you shitting me? <laughs> it's such a beautiful sentiment and it, it would have to come from him because there's a sense of defiance and a sense of identity in this place. And this idea of this is a terrible thing, but you know what? It doesn't have to stay terrible. This could actually create solidarity if we let it. And you know, maybe it's the fact that I watched this movie at the, at the sort of the tail end of, of like, uh, a more strict lockdown and a time when like, there's been a rough time for the country, a rough time for the world. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but you know what? Fucking somebody sing. Cause we can do this. We can get past this. And man, it's a, it's nice a film that just, it gets me every time. Uh, well, I, uh, from, uh, a well-known masterpiece to uh a masterpiece that i uh had had never heard of and i think a a lot of younger people our age and younger hadn't luckily there's a new brand new restoration uh out i watched um melvin van peebles first film the story of a three-day pass Hmm. and yeah i already let the cat out of the bag let the cat out of the bag it's a, a a masterpiece um it's a it's a french production it takes place in france and it is the story of a uh, black american soldier on a base in in france who gets a promotion and along with the promotion his uh, commanding officer gives him a three-day pass to go into paris and and and, and have fun and um uh, he he does at the, uh, the movie for not being very long uh, it has a long section of him in Paris, like trying to have fun, but it's like a really sort of awkward sort of, uh, just large, largely wordless, almost like silent comedy type, just series of, of, of events of him, like trying to do things that should be fun, like sitting in the park and, and stuff and just like not knowing what to, what to do with himself. Uh, and then he meets, uh, a woman and they end up, uh, having a, you know, a, I guess two and a half day. Cause he wasted the first half, uh, bubbling around, uh, romance but um it is uh imperative to note that this woman is white Mm -hmm. um she is a sort of french free spirit um she doesn't uh but also being white has the privilege to not think about like the fact that this is going to be a problem for for other people he is constantly torn between like giving himself over to like the 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 rush of feelings and emotions he's having for this woman, but also constantly watching his back, constantly seeing, making sure the wrong people aren't seeing this white woman, you know, uh, uh, lean on his shoulder or give him a kiss or, 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 or these things. Um, 
it's uh, uh, the the movie. It, you've seen. Have you seen Sweet Sweetback? Yeah. Uh, okay. So you know about. Melvin Van Peebles, he's not, uh, as a filmmaker, he's not a straight ahead type of filmmaker. There's right. a lot of sort of like montage and impressionism and jump cuts and, and, um, uh, and, and things like that. And, um, so this movie is full of that. It's, it, it feels like, uh, like some of the, most of the best impressionistic movies, it feels like lightning in a bottle. It feels like it couldn't, it, it, happened this one time and luckily they got it all on film <laughs> and it, it it has that 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 rareness um uh and that singularity to it um it's a, a really really beautiful film i'm so glad that it was uh restored it was i want to mention this <laughs> i don't want to sound like i'm coming to the defense of the hollywood foreign press association sure. after all the problems they've had but it is worth noticing noting that when they weren't like um being racist in their awards uh, selections or just like blindly catering to uh celebrities without even having seen the films <laughs> yep. they'd seen they also funded a lot of restorations um mm. and uh, uh it's you know it's I, I, again i don't want to sound like i'm uh um defending uh, what they did but i just wanted to to mention that uh it is uh, and this, the timing couldn't have been on purpose but it is quite a coincidence that at the time yeah. at the same time that um they're rightly being uh uh pilloried for their um seemingly intentional uh racial blindness they also were restoring an early work by one of the greatest and most important african-american filmmakers uh, of, of all time yeah they get it uh that's yeah. the point you're making, yeah, that's the point I'm making. <laughs> uh, but anyway i'm glad this uh, restoration e- exists i'm sure it's coming to a blu-ray soon all right so next up for me is another uh, another film that i would say is a masterpiece i don't think okay. i would i don't think i would have used the term uh, until rewatching it, uh, a film I've seen countless times, but it's probably been over ten years since I seen it. Uh, I saw it, um, and that is James Foley's Glengarry Glen Ross. Oh man, I haven't seen that in forever. I mean, I watched it a ton in high school and college, and it's just one of those things. I didn't stop liking it, but there comes a moment where it's like you just you feel like you've gotten your. It's like uh, you go, you know, I'll go through a rib phase. Mm. where all I want to do is eat ribs and then something happens, something unconscious. Like I think I'm done with ribs for, I'm going to say eight to 10 months. Um, <laughs> and, and that's I how I get with some, about, uh, this is just, uh, I always say this about whenever I am reminded that like pregnant women aren't supposed to eat sushi. Hmm. I feel like I think I could without thinking about it, go nine months without eating sushi. Yeah. But if someone told me I couldn't eat sushi for oh, nine months, I'd think about it every day. <laughs> yeah. You don't tell me what to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. And so it just, I, I, I don't know. I don't think I went through a Glengarry Glen Ross phase, but it's just like, Oh, I'm just suddenly, I got what I need to get out of it. And then of course, when you think back on it, you think of these amazing performances and obviously you think of David Mamet's writing. Um, I don't think I remembered quite how cinematic it is. Um, it's not, I mean, I like American Buffalo, but it's not American Buffalo. That one is extremely stagey and it feels it. This one, James Foley is working very hard, but effortlessly. Cause that's the other thing. Hurley Burley also works really hard to not make it seem stagey. And in doing so, it only underlines how much of a stage play it is. This one, I think partially due to a beautiful adaptation 
of the material by David Mamet because I also went back and reread his play oh. and realized just how different it is that he incorporated all kinds of stuff that that would make it feel like more of a film and then uh, James Foley with his the way he uses color the way he uses sound design art direction obviously but also it is a surprisingly active camera like you wouldn't think it for this type of material but if you watch it you're like oh wow no this is not just set up the you know set up the tripod go to coffee while the actors do this amazing work uh no he's there he's engaged and so are we and it really is it's to the point now it's like this is a flawless film i think it is really marvelous um, oh, you know, it's not marvelous. That What's is, that? in fact, terrible. Okay. Um, the new Philip Noyce film, Above Suspicion. Oh, that's what I've heard, yes. Uh, yeah, it's, to go back to what you were saying about Hillbilly, it's another side of that same coin in which it's, like, the patronizing, like, sure. d- depiction of, of, uh, of these people. And uh, Amelia Clark, who, um, uh, it's, I'm, on the one hand, I'm so glad that Game of Thrones made her famous. On the other hand, I feel like no one seems to know how to use her, sure. right, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you've got her, you've got Jack Houston, um, you've got some other Chris Mulkey shows up, uh, Sophie Lowe from Blow the Man Down, the, uh, oh, yeah, okay. the older of the two sisters, yeah. the one uh, with the more of a head on her shoulders mm-hmm. uh, of the two sisters. Uh, she's in it. It's based on a true story of, um, and I guess when I say what the true story is, it's kind of a spoiler for what happens in the movie, except it's not because it's, it has that Sunset Boulevard thing of the, like the character, the movie is narrated by a person Got who it. tells you at the beginning they're dead. So Emilio Clark's character gets murdered. Um, Jack Houston plays, the first FBI agent ever to be convicted of murder. So this is based on a true story. It's an interesting where, story. Uh, yeah, he was a um, um, an FBI agent working this uh, drug ring, I guess, in um, in Kentucky. Emilio Clark was tied into that, became his criminal informant, then became his mistress. He was married to a woman played by Sophie Lowe. Um, he... Uh, uh, she got pregnant. He, I guess, responded to that by strangling her. Uh, that's the that's the true story. The movie obviously dra- dramatizes hmm. a lot of stuff to fill out a hundred minutes or whatever. But uh, it just it's it feels like it has no connection to this sense of it has no connection to the community to to the people. Um, it it feels like a bunch of I mean Johnny Knoxville's in it as Amelia Clark's ex husband, um, and he's weirdly like while not being on the pedigree of this uh, of of the the rest of the cast in many ways he feels like someone who's closer to these sure. people and um, uh, and he ends up being more believable than most of the other uh, very good actors in, in the cast. It also has a thing I think people who are more Southern than I am, cause I'm from Missouri, which is not really the South, especially the St. Louis part of it, which mm-hmm. goes out of its way to, uh, not be the South in so many ways. So people who are more Southern than I am can, can, uh, tell me if I'm right on this, but I, outside of someone who's not a Southerner doing a Southern accent, I've only heard the word y'all used to refer to a group of people at once. But when other people who don't know, they refer to, they'll use this singular y'all. 
mm-hmm. which is like it, it's a giveaway that that person's not from there. They're putting on a voice, that, yeah. and, and, it had, and it, there's multiple uses of the singular y'all yeah. in Above Suspicion. Um, I don't know. Look, Southerners who are listening, let me know if you would ever refer to one single person as y'all. Um, I've never heard it in the wild, uh, and it sounds super weird to me. And sound, and it just is a signifier of condescension. I have uh, so my friend that I watched Doctor Strange live with, and the same friend that I'm about that, that I watched the movie I'm about to talk about um, with. Uh, he's a Southerner. And has an accent. Uh-huh. And the closest I, I he says y'all, uh-huh. he says it, the smallest number of people is me and Jen. He'll say y'all yeah, in reference to two people. Yeah, that's still more than one still person. Still more than yeah. one person, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I've not, to my knowledge, heard him use it for only one person. Right. Um, okay, I hope I'm right. Speaking of that, uh, the last masterpiece I'll be talking about uh, <laughs> today is Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Another movie that I've seen multiple times it's and not for a while. Been forever, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, it, I think it's safe to say at this point, Orson Welles is my favorite director. I just love pretty much everything he does. I like this. Haven't up? you heard? <laughs> what? He just put out a movie a few years ago. I, I What's going on? I just saw one at the uh, AFI Fest, too. The documentary. Man. I thought he was nailing it. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it just, whether it be thematic, whether it be narrative, whether it be him as an actor or his visual sense and tonal sense, I just love what he does. His movies are so rich sometimes in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable. His movies are not light, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and even something like touch a bill, it's a film noir. There, there are noir films that I will watch casually. This isn't one of them because just the, his, his sensibilities, he just like pat visually. He'll just like pack a frame just like with bric-a-brac so that you just inherently feel uncomfortable. Like you're like the movie is a hoarder somehow. Uh, yeah. and then the way that the, and just his editing style, like it just, he edits for like maximum just discomfort. And I say this in the best possible way. Um, that he's telling a story about like he's telling a story that's kind of gross and so he tells it in kind of a gross way like right down to his character and just like the way he's padded out and like the 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 bags under his eyes and the fake nose he always had a fake nose but this particular fake nose and he just looks sweaty all the time and you're just not comfortable watching this movie and then Dennis Weaver shows up uh, as the night man at the motel he's like oh boy this is exhausting to me Uh, again all in the best way like it just keeps you engaged and just but it keeps you a little bit repelled at the same time and I think I like that. I, I, I love that his films are visually beautiful, and yet an argument can be made that he's making movies about ugliness, whether it be The Stranger or even something like Othello or Macbeth or whatever it is. Like his, he, He's able to extract tremendous beauty out of something that you might discard uh, or not want to deal with. And, and I think the same, I think that that is absolutely true of Touch of Evil, not just visually, but also uh, narratively as well. And uh, I really, really responded. I, I always respond to it, but I, it had been so long that I was like, oh, yeah. And, and I asked my friend who, you know, was a young guy and, and had never seen, I don't know if he'd seen any film noir. And I think he was, he'd only seen Kane on my recommendation. Um, and he really responded to it. And he really, he's, 
he's like a big cinematography guy. Like he really looks mm. for that more than really anything else. And he just said like, this is an, this is amazing what he is able to do and how it makes me feel. Uh, and so, yeah. Uh, and incidentally, I watched touch of evil twice. I watched the, the re-edit. And then I went back and watched oh. the theatrical cut, which I hadn't seen since high school. I've never seen it. And still good. Okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. like it's like, that was the only version I had seen for a long time. And I, it was one of my favorite movies. Then the re-edit certainly fleshes things out a little bit, but that original still pretty solid. Although the fact that they put credits over the, uh, over the opening shot is a little unforgivable. Um, cause it really distracts from what's happening. But, uh, but yeah, still it's uh, from an acad- as an academic exercise. It's always fun to watch like these, the two different cuts. Uh, all right. I, uh, I watched the movie. I went into, um, thinking I wasn't going to care for, uh, and ended up liking a little, little bit more, uh, than I thought I would. And that's Anders Thomas Jensen's writers of justice. Uh, terrible name, not a good name. Um, and I think the movie knows it's a bad name, but it only, it's like, if you give your movie a bad name that like, once you watch the movie, it's like, Oh, sure. But, people haven't seen the movie yet. Like it's, yeah. uh, you're shooting yourself in the foot there. Um, uh, the, the writers of justice, uh, is the name of a motorcycle gang in the movie who are supposed to be like, it's supposed to be dumb. Okay. That's their name, but it's still weird to call then call the movie that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the movie is, uh, it's the only Anders Thomas Jensen film I'd seen, um, before was 2003's The Green Butchers. Do you remember The Green Butchers? I didn't see it, but I know about it, yes. Um, and then he made uh, one called Men and Chicken, which I didn't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he makes, like, dark comedies that I, I think people like you and I, 2003, you know, that age, we ate that shit up. Now yeah. I'm a little bit more mature, and I'm like, uh, I expect something different from my dark comedies. This is yeah. like, you know, I don't need that, like, sort of smug detachment um boy and so that's when I think we get I to the tv into, journal I'm, I'm right there with you <laughs> um when uh so when i went into writers of justice kind of expecting that sort of thing and it is a dark comedy but I th- it's a it's a much more mature movie um in many ways than i than i expected the the the, the premise is that there's this uh this guy who's like a uh uh intellectual who is not really good at uh, functioning in the regular world um is on a like a subway and there's a an accident in derailment in which a bunch of people die um and he using his like science brain uh becomes um convinced that this wasn't an accident that the writers of justice orchestrated this to blah, 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 do something. Mm. It's not important. Um, and he, there's one, one of the people who died in particular is he felt, he feels particularly bad because he gave his woman a seat, gave a woman his seat on the subway. If he hadn't done that, he would have died and she would have lived. Got it. So he goes and tracks down her family which is uh, Mads Mikkelsen hmm. uh, uh, plays her her husband and tells her what they know. And Mads, Mik- Mads Mikkelsen is a uh, uh, lifer, like lifelong soldier, military guy who is not very good at processing his emotions and decides that this is the perfect opportunity to 
work through his grief by murdering all of the writers of justice. <laughs> and so this, so basically it's like this one sort of like, uh, uh, John McClane type being helped by a group of, or he's, I, I should say one punisher who ends up being helped by a group of like micros who are, uh, <laughs> socially maladjusted, um, trying to take on you're, a, cr- you're a criminal, selling bike, me yeah, a criminal bike gang. It's, it's, it's not bad. Uh, it's, it's funny. It's, um, uh, it still has some of that, like that, that distance and that sort of sheen to it that, um, is a little too slick. It, you know, I'm not going to call it a masterpiece that we've said yeah. so much tonight, but it was, I will say it's a movie that is better than I thought it was going to be. And certainly better than that dumb title implies. All right. So next up, uh, this is an opportunity to give a bit of a, uh, just a heads up to people for the next however many movie journal. So I have uh, gotten the green light to make another uh, film. This is very exciting. At a much higher budget, which is very exciting. It'll take care of me for the summer, which is nice because the job I usually have is not happening because it involves uh, students visiting from Italy, and that's not going to happen. Right. And so... Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's another documentary. This one's going to be a little bit is going to be structured a little bit different, but um, and it's going to be about horror. So I've been purchasing lots of horror movies to uh, to rip and use clips from, uh, and some of them I hadn't seen before, and so it's like, well, I feel like I should watch them. Mm-hmm. So I'm there's going to be a lo- there's not going to be a lot of 2021 movies, but don't worry, there's going to be a lot of horror. Some of it not so great. For example, I watched Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Have you seen it? No, I've never seen it. All right. <laughs> Wait, did you... Uh, this might be spoiling something. Did you watch Saw? Not yet. Okay. I've... Uh, I have all of them now. Okay. Um, you know what? I, I need... I feel like... If I'm going to talk about the Saw franchise, which I have to, because there's so many of them, I should watch at least three. Okay. So I'm going to watch... I'm going to watch three Saw movies. Okay. And... Uh, well, um... But here's the, here's the thing. I'll say this. This is something we would normally say off mic. Uh, I have something for the opening of the next regular episode. Oh, fun. Then. Okay. Um, here's, here's the thing, though. So I would, I would, you know, rip these onto my computer and then, you know, essentially categorize and move them around. And when you rip something from a, a Blu-ray or DVD, like it, it's not going to be clearly labeled. Uh, and so in order to, so like I would, some things would be like two movies would be on one disc. Mm-hmm. So they is, but I don't know which one is which. So it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to go in and, and find the title. I discovered very quickly. Okay. Saw whatever movie it is, they're going to reveal the title after a after a horrendous first five minutes. <laughs> and I think it was Saw Five where there was a uh, pendulum situation, like a pit in the pendulum. And uh, I was like, oh, oh boy, this is tough sledding. This is going to be rough, rough stuff. Um, but anyway, so uh, so yeah, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which came out in '94, and so you can see, you can see all of the internal calculation of like, well, Hey, Francis Ford Coppola went really melodramatic with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh-huh. Can we outdo it? 
But was that a hit, Bram Stoker's Dracula? I guess it was. I don't remember. Uh, I can't remember. I think, I think it was, and it did well uh, at the Oscars as far as nominations okay. and stuff, and it got some critical acclaim. And I think I, if, if you're someone like Kenneth Branagh as a director, yeah. you look at that and you think, well, I don't care if it did well or not. Uh, you know, the precedent has been set and now I'm going to go, I'm going to try and go for it. Exactly. I'm going (laughs) to pick it up and put it on. And uh, so Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is in many ways a perfectly fine film. It's not in any way scary, but that's okay. Frankenstein, the the Frankenstein movies tend not to be scary. They are horrific. Mm. That's for sure. Uh, This is a thing that I've said before, which is so many people understandably associate horror with scary but it doesn't have to be that. Yeah. And yeah. the idea of a reanimated corpse yeah. is horrific. And certainly in this film, I mean, the, the makeup is, is disgusting and it's Robert De Niro as the, the, the monster and beautiful art direction, really wonderful costumes. Like visually it's, it's great. And it's, and it's clearly trying to go with like an operatic tone, both with the, the music and the way the camera is used and the performances themselves, specifically Kenneth Branagh as Dr. Frankenstein. Um, and so I kind of respect what he's trying to do. He's trying to like play up just this old school melodramatic kind of thing. So I, I get it. And I will say everything with the monster works great. Mm-hmm. I like the writing. I like the performance. Uh, and they do a really good job of making the, making the character sympathetic while still being monstrous. And he does some really awful things, uh, which is true to the Mary Shelley novel. But overall, it's like, you know, when you go when you go with this level of stylization, you are basically guaranteeing that you are going to keep people at arm's length. And that's absolutely what happens here. I don't really care about anything that's happening, Um, but I I kind of am happy that the film was made um, because it does. Incidentally, when I. when I bought it, because, you know, I'm buying some of these cheap, it was a Blu-ray two-pack of Bram Stoker's Dracula and Mary Shelley's (laughs) Frankenstein. And if you watch one right after another, like, you just get a sense of, like, this old-school operatic horror. And I feel like you could probably get, it came out many years later, but Joe Johnston's Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro, which also has, which is also very stylized, you can get that in there, and you get this really nice melodramatic operatic reimagining of these classic universal monsters. And so it's not a movie I'd necessarily recommend, except there, there's so much, there's so many individual things recommendable about it. Um, so if any of what I just said appeals to you, check it out, yeah. but know that it's not a movie I necessarily think is, is that engaging. Kenneth Branagh might be another director like Rodrigo Garcia sure. for me, who like is a, yeah, 50, 50, he's a coin toss yeah. in terms of success, but I'm still always interested. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Now, next up for me is, uh, Robert, I think it's pronounced Machoyan's the killing of two lovers. Okay. This movie is so good. Okay. Um, it's, uh, uh, the actor Clayne Crawford, who, I have like never seen in anything before, at least in that, that I remember. The only thing, unfortunately, the only thing I know about him is he got fired from the lethal weapon TV show for apparently that's, being quite difficult. That's on, what I, that's where I know that name on set. But then like I read more into the story and now I, I can't tell like, is he difficult or did he and Damon Wayans not get along and Damon sure. Wayans carries more clout? I, like, sure. Uh, so I can't, I couldn't entirely tell what the, uh, situation is. Um, I don't know. I don't want to make excuses, but, um, it's a fantastic lead performance. Um, 
he uh, um, he plays a man in a small Utah town who has moved back in with his father. The town is so small that his wife, his house that he lived in with his wife and four kids uh, is like around the corner. It's such a small town. And um, he and his wife are on a separate. They're separated. He is working on. He wants to work on the marriage. She says she wants to work on the marriage, but also like part of the separation is they're free to see other people. And she seems to be becoming a little more serious with, uh, uh, this, the, this other guy, um, uh, played by an actor named Chris Coy. Um, I should say his ex-wife is played by an actress named, uh, Sapita Moafi. I'm glad I looked that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy she's seeing is played by Chris Coy. Both of them were on HBO's the deuce, which, uh, became a, just a ridiculous show by the end. But, uh, they're both really great. Chris Coy was before that. He was on uh, Treme. Um, he's a he's a really good actor. Uh, so yeah, you got three lead performances or like two leads and major supporting performances that are that are really good. But it's really Clayne Crawford's show because you know the title is the killing of two lovers. You have this feeling. This guy, you can. You're like on the one hand, you're with him. You understand this is a painful thing for him. On the other hand, you understand like this guy might go off. Like mm-hmm. he might do something terrible because of, uh, he's not in, he's, he, he's not doing well with, with, with all of this. And that's that, that, um, that, uh, that, that tension is in his performance. It's also in the camera, which is constantly like, um, I, I described the camera as being like a loyal, but nervous, like a, like a, a beaten dog who's loyal, but nervous. Like it follows, it follows him around, sure. but it always, the camera mostly stays at just enough of a distance that if shit goes off, it can get the fuck out of oh, there. That's, that's how it feels a lot, a lot of the time. And then you've got, I want to say score, but it's not the, and now I forgot his name. I mentioned in my review, go find my review at battleshipretention.com. Cause I mentioned the guy's name. I can't remember what it is now, but he's just credited as sound designer mm-hmm. because the score, um, is, is basically a collection of the sounds from this guy's life sort of deconstructed and repurposed. And sometimes like they anticipate there's, there's one, like when he's walking around, um, and you keep hearing on the soundtrack, this like, whoop, like whoosh, whoop, like type mm-hmm. of sound. And then like at the end of the sequence, he slams his truck door and you realize, Oh, that's the sound I've been hearing this entire time. Oh. But it happens like in, t- in like, time with uh, the, with the movie. Sort of like atonement. Like I remember the, I don't like atonement that much, okay. but I remember I liking remember. the score. Yeah. Cause it incorporates like sound effects into it. Yeah. Um, um yeah. So, uh, the killing of two lovers is fantastic. Definitely worth checking out. All right, here we go. I went to the international Christian film festival. Okay. I've been there many times. I have literally never gone to somebody's film, even though people always like give me a postcard and say, Oh, it's going to be screening at this day and that day. But this year, my movie was screening, even though it was official, it was an official selection for last year, mm-hmm. but it was all virtual last year. And so I, uh, kind of said like, well, you know, it's a movie about Christian film, so maybe we could screen it out of competition, which we did. And it was a lot of fun, but that means that you get a lot of people saying, 
oh, that's I, your movie sounds great. I will go see it. Like, do you want to see mine? It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> Like now, you opened up a can of wine. I did. It's not going to be, you know. Thank God, I'm making this uh, horror documentary, which I have no expectation of it doing well at any Christian film festival, despite it having a, a heavily uh, Christian message. But anyway, uh, so I did go see a lot more movies, and the fact that friend of the show Jason Eakin was there, uh, inexplicable friend of the show, no, inexplicable fan favorite, yes. Jason Eakin. Thank yeah. you. Um, uh, he was there, and he was like schmoozing it up and making friends and it was great uh, i know it's crazy right at the, in that setting it's also fun to have an ally there uh because for years i whether it be the films that i had i've seen elsewhere or whatever just like are people here aware how bad these movies are and then like jason would actually go and see these things He's, he goes i don't get it they're applauding. Why are they applauding? And I was like, I hear you, man. Uh, but anyway, so, so he and I just sort of as a, as a little team, like he hung out at my table and he helped me make sales, which is great. Um, sort of my hype man. Um, but anyway, so because of that and because I felt obligated to see things and there are people that I got along with really well and they seem to know movies. And so I went to go see their movie. So I saw a lot more this year than I have previously. And I'll say I saw like three or four short films, all of which were great genuinely great um there was a movie called sky uh about uh, 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 a young uh, like budding pianist uh who also deals with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and i think they handle that beautifully very respectfully there's a movie called the soldier which is like a half hour long and it's about eh, very similar to the movie risen uh but i think better um about a well, like one of the soldiers that killed christ and like the what he's doing during the three days like leading up to the resurrection it's wonderfully shot wonderfully acted anyway so i saw but i did see two features i started to watch a third but i left about five minutes in because i could not take it and i knew it is highly unlikely this movie is going to skyrocket in in quality because (laughs) this thing was awful how many features play each year at the Christian Inter- Inter- the International Christian Film Festival. The International Christian yeah. Film Festival. I would say offhand, maybe about 25, 30, um, maybe even more than that. But they have multiple rooms. Right. And so, uh, so yeah, what's funny is that uh, uh, this is a story I can tell. Yeah, let's, let's tell it. It'll be fun. Um, there's a guy that I see every year there. His name's Dominic. He, he lives in Florida now, but he's, he lived in, he he worked in Hollywood for a while. He was in the movie super. He often just because of his build and his look, he played like thugs, like, Mm -hmm. like, uh, villains, thugs and henchmen, hench people. Yes. There you go. It's usually henchmen. I got to say, cause (laughs) they, they exude a certain, uh, dumbness that feels particularly male to me. Um, but, uh, do you know, okay, sorry. Never mind. I was walking around your neighborhood before I, uh, came cause I was early and you were putting the kids to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I walked past a place called people ready called people ready, people ready. And I realized when I was broke, like a broke college student or just post college student, um, or in between like summers, I would go to labor ready. Oh, sure. And like, it was like, you know, legal day laboring, like a mm-hmm. place that needs a bunch of people to move shit for a day hire people and i realized and i realized like oh they changed their name from labor ready to people ready and i wonder if that means 
are they now like a temp agency that does non-labor stuff as well or maybe is referring to people as labor dehumanizing anyway uh i wouldn't have said if i hadn't I, you know what? I, people I wonder if the word labor immediately gets people thinking in terms of union and oh, this is definitely this is not, not <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh they're like welcome to labor uh what is it labor ready labor ready, so, yeah. yeah welcome to labor ready don't get the wrong idea yeah um so anyway so this guy dominic he's so the there's like a big premiere uh, of a movie that that uh, I, I know that like a lot of the people involved with the festival had been working on for like three years and Dominic was in it. And so, uh, it was supposed to be like, it was like, Oh, it's like an invite only kind of thing. Even though it's like, there's a lot of people here. I'm like, this is clearly not invite only, invite only, but whatever. But Jason and I anticipating what was true, uh, sat in the back corner <laughs> so that we could slip away. Uh, so we did after five minutes because there was actually another film that was going to be playing, uh, that we were more interested in, which I'll be talking about in a moment. Okay. So, and I just, and I thought like, Oh shoot. Like, you know, Dominic is like such a nice guy and he's in the movie and he invited me to it. You know, like I, I what am I going to say that like, Hey, I didn't like it. And I, uh, you know, so the next day he goes, Hey, uh, but he, by the way, he's uh, very, uh, Jersey, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes, Hey, I got to talk to you. I was like, all right. He goes, dude, my movie sucks. <laughs> and he's like, what do I do about it? And I was like, well, the movie's done. There's not much you can do about it. And he's like, he goes, yeah, but I, I'm mad. I'm mad. I don't, he goes, and he said the same thing that Jason said. He goes, he goes, everyone's clapping. What are you clapping about? And it was, it was great. It was a fun interaction. And I was like, well, I guess I don't have to worry about hurting his feelings. Um, anyway, so I just thought people might, I know that we don't, we're not looking to pad the runtime of this uh, episode, but uh, I thought people might find those stories funny. Anyway, so I did see a movie directed by Matt, a guy named Matt Green called The Man from Nowhere. It is a deeply imperfect film, but it's not awful. Uh, It features, among others, Nick Searcy, who unsurprisingly is the best part of it. Like it just a a completely cliche type character, but he makes it his own, makes it feel original. Get the right actor in almost any movie and they can, they can really uh, salvage material. But, uh, but the premise is one that I don't mind, which is you have this, uh, this character uh, who is sort of this hotshot lawyer, not, and clearly an alcoholic. And I really like the way they deal with his alcoholism where it's not, they don't hang a lantern on it too much. Um, That's how did you find that out? I'm an internet sleuth. Look at you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, <laughs> uh, that's, that was jarring. I wasn't ready. He, he pulled up on his phone, the, the movie that I walked yeah. out of. But anyway, um, and incidentally, I might be consulting on, uh, sometime this summer, okay. uh, as far as a re-edit. So, uh, anyway, so it's about this this hotshot young like lawyer in Hollywood, and he's a bit of a womanizer and all that. And he has, he's estranged from his father, played by Nick Nick Cersei. His father is a famous uh, writer of like crime novels and such. Uh, and his father is is sick, and his father sends him a copy of his latest book called The Man from Nowhere. And so as our as our main character is reading it, we then see these scenes uh, portrayed. And it's done very stylistically. It's like an old school film noir. Like the everything about it changes 
from like the real world to this, like high contrast lighting, very stylized dialogue and performances. Um, and it's pretty good. Personally, I think they should have shot that in black and white or turned it black and white. I think that would have made it an even clear, an even starker difference hmm. between the two. And I think, I think their lighting probably could have, uh, I think it could have looked even more dramatic. Um, but anyway, so then it turns out like, okay, well this, this book is essentially, uh, the, the father's sort of mea culpa to his son. And so we're, we're getting the relationship of him with it, you know, with his father, is that starting to build into anything even vaguely positive while there's this other thing going on. So it's this parallel story and it mostly works. Okay. Unfortunately, this being a Christian film, you also have a scene where in real life, the father actively tells his son, I wrote this book for you. I can't explain how I feel, but I, you know, but guys of my generation couldn't do that, but I put it in this book. It's like, you don't need this. You don't need that scene. All right. Any even vaguely savvy viewer will understand what you are doing because it's also not hidden that well, but that's so aside from, you know, on the nose, stuff like that, uh, it's, it's not perfect. Again, there is some clunky writing, not some performances that don't totally work, but by and large, I was pleasantly surprised by it. Uh, it's called the man from nowhere. I have no idea in what capacity a person can see it. I think they do have distribution, uh, probably for a streaming service or something like that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it in the world of Christian film. It's, it's uh, pretty solid. Uh, all right. <clears throat> I watched the film from 2006, going way back to 2006. Okay. Um, I watched uh, Julia Loctev's Day Night, Day Night. Okay. Which um, won Julia Loctev the Someone to Watch Award at the Independent Spirit uh, Awards uh, that year. And But what does that uh, have to do with you, David? <laughs> we'll talk about it after the next film. Okay. But um, uh, it's, it's weird. I... I feel bad almost saying what the premise is because I had the benefit of watching it just knowing it's directed by Julia Loctev. She won this award for it. I don't know anything about what, mm-hmm. what it's about. So I got to kind of figure out. But it's almost it's also impossible for me to talk about the movie is without saying what the premise is. So if you really want to stay, fu- I very highly recommend the movie. I'll say that first. If you want to stay fully spoiler-free, skip ahead a f- few minutes or whatever. Yeah. But... Um, we start with the, uh, we see this 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 woman. It's sort of like a um, Dardenne brothers type of like wherever she goes, the camera's just like following her, mostly like focused on her her head. We see we start to see we see her like sort of praying at first, um, uh, and she gets off a plane and she like is getting instructions on a cell phone and she's being picked up by a stranger and then taken to a hotel room. We don't know like is this woman being trafficked or and then like men start coming in with their face faces covered and we realize eventually over time like oh this woman has come to new york city in order to be a suicide bomber hmm. that's the the that's the premise and i will say like i said very highly recommended movie i think it's great i will say major caveat i had to set some uh, like moral uh, quandaries aside the movie makes intentionally cuts around any mention of these people's ideology. Okay. And I think I understand the intent here is to focus on unwavering belief and commitment to the thing. But I also think with something as 
immediate and real as that removing ideology from suicide bombing does is kind of reductive i think kind of insulting to victims i had i had some problems with that but when i approach it from on the 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 terms that it set for itself and from just a as a formalistic uh uh piece it's just undeniable how how powerful it is how um how uh instinctive and and singular distinct julia lacto's personal like visual cinematic language yeah. is the way that uh, uh, uh that that she she has this it's like an intense curiosity but also endless patience at the sure. same time so she's like you know the 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 scenes of this woman being taught like how to first arm and then set off the bomb are as much that have given as much attention as the scenes of her clipping her toenails on it before. And like, uh, I think there's a lot of compassion in that. And it also leads to, by uh, this, um, it takes place inside this woman's head in, in a way that, the, or at least we're trying, we spend the whole movie trying to get into, into our head. So when it comes to the potential moment in question, um, we're on the edge of our seats because we feel like we've seen no, indication that this woman is going to have any hesitation hmm. whatsoever. She is 100% devout. Um, she doesn't really ask questions. She, she behaves as if, as, as someone who's like, has already taken her foot off the gas of her own life. Like she's already, but like by the time she's gotten there in her mind, she's already done the thing. So hmm. she's just completely, submissive to this this process it's a a fascinating um uh uh, exercise um it's undeniably in engaging um yeah i can't uh forgive i can't fully forgive like some of the what, what what i think is kind of uh um morally uh, I, I, I don't know irresponsible i'm not sure that's not quite the word i'm looking for but um uh i so with that in mind i will still say i think the movie, yeah. uh, if you love filmmaking i think it's a it's a very worthy watch yeah i feel like i i can see why she would try and do that because it, it, she's trying about trying to talk about something bigger but you know, when we see movies that take place in an anonymous city, right? Because yeah. it could take place in any city. It's like, yeah, but you know what? If you just specify the city, we'll get it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? It's, uh, I also hated. Um, it's I, I hate when movies about politicians don't specify their party. Sure, I hate like uh, especially when like they'll have the politician speak a certain way or say a certain thing. It's like, well, now you've made it. Like, come on. Or or the the opposite with like. Veep is one that I that always bothered me sure. because they'll have her voice opinions on both sides. Oh, all right, but I but that's like, well, then who voted for this person? Like, how yeah. did this person become president? Yeah, like uh, how did any, how did either party back her or become vice president? Rather, yeah. you know, like how did? Uh, yeah, I don't I don't like that lack of specificity. In this case, obviously, there's an extra moral layer. Sure. Too. All right, you're uh, okay. So. The movie that I opted to go see instead of, by the way, I'm, I'm exaggerating when I say five minutes in. It's, it was longer than that, but uh, the, the one that I walked oh, out okay. of, I didn't, I, it occurred to me, it's like, I'm, I'm joking, but uh, that might not come across. Anyway, 
But yeah, so uh, Jason and I, we had talked with this guy named Tyler Sansom, who's a super nice guy and knows his movies. Sorry, his name's Tyler's Handsome? Might as well be. He's a good looking guy. Tyler Sansom. Uh, like, was it Harriet Sansom Harris who was in uh, Phantom Thread and won the uh, BP for uh, Bruce oh. McGill? Is that award name? I think that's it. Anyway, so he came to the table, hung out with uh, me and Jason, got along splendidly. He knows his movies. We spent a long time talking about Parasite. Um, and so. I was curious to see his movie. So the movie that we left to go watch was his film uh, called A Father's Fight, a title he didn't like and didn't choose. Uh, His title was just... Whoa. No, it's a writer's of justice. (laughs) You know what? On every level, I'd say you're right. Um, So... uh, so yeah, he just wanted the title to be Fight. And then, of course, you do hear a lot about, like, Christian distributors who say, oh, well, can we change the title to this? And invariably, like, you can you can usually tell a Christian film just by its, by its name, stuff like A Father's Fight. That couldn't be any, maybe a Hallmark film or something like that. Uh, but yeah, something like, uh, like that. Ugh. Anyway, uh, so, and he's the first one to say he, he didn't care for it. And so, so we went to see it and... Oh boy, we were very disappointed, uh, which is a shame because the the performances, the two lead performances especially, are solid, like really good. Both of them are totally. It's about a uh, a, a guy who lives in a small town and he's a bit of a drunk and a very believable one from a performance standpoint. He is, his marriage is on the rocks because of him, mm-hmm. uh, and his wife is is like trying to remember what she loves about him essentially. And it's becoming harder and harder to do her performance solid. There are, when they like get into it, like uh, with arguments and stuff, it really works for me. And the film is shot fairly well from a lighting composition and color standpoint. Camera movement seems almost totally unmotivated. Like you don't understand Mm -hmm. why they're doing something. It's almost as though someone said, well, you can't just have a static shot. The camera needs to move. It's like, okay, we'll just move it. It's like, well, hang on. You could tie it to the emotion of the, of the scene. No, no one, no one said like that. like a shot clock and it's like, it's been 25 <laughs> seconds. We have to move it. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Um, and so, uh, so it has a lot of things going for it, but man, like the thing that gets me about Christian film is that it's it is a welcome uh, uh, surprise when I'm able to criticize a film, a Christian film, the way I would criticize any other film hmm. and say, oh, well, this doesn't seem totally motivated or whatever. But then you say like, but a lot of Christian films, you're just like, I it's frustrating because this guy, he'd seen at the very least Parasite and loved it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how are you so unable to understand the basic language and cadence of mm-hmm. film. Like this doesn't feel like a film. It feels like some weird experiment that a person that, that, that did not go well, but like the scenes just go on just so much longer than they need to. And like you could cut all of those scenes in half and we will have gotten all the information we, we need, but they just go on and on and 
they really squander the 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 quality of those performances and just like whether it be totally unmotivated character uh, camera movements or strange edits or just no edits or whatever it is you're just like this doesn't feel like a movie it feels like something different and so i i feel like i, I was reluctant to even bring it up here because it doesn't it is a movie it's feature mm-hmm. length it's getting distribution it's winning awards at other christian film festivals which i feel like is the worst possible thing that could happen for it um but it's like you talk to jason or anybody else who's watched movies like this and it's like i feel like i can't it's it feels insulting to talk about to talk about it in the same breath as mortal Kombat. mortal Kombat (laughs) is not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination but the thing the problems i have with it are the problems you have with movies that are bad the problems i have with a movie like uh, like a father's fight are problems that you have with like concepts it's it's hard to even explain. I like I want you to watch this movie or, or or some other movies that that I talk about in the in my documentary because I want you because to me it's like it doesn't even matter if I agree with this philosophically. Like that's lost, that's gone, that went away a long time ago. I don't like what you're doing here, and I don't understand what you're doing here. I don't understand how it's possible. Do you remember what uh, it's been? I mean, like a decade. Um, or more probably since Frank Conniff was first a guest on sure. this show. But he, I remember him saying something like basically there will never be movies or it's so rare to find movies as bad as the ones they made fun of on mystery science theater, because like the baseline of sophistication has, has, has risen. People aren't, no one is that bad at making movies anymore. And maybe I beg to, differ. maybe they just need to head to You mentioned Christian film festivals, plural. How many of them are there in the U S more than I was aware of. Okay. Uh, we submitted my film to a number of them and I feel like I'm always discovering a new one. Like there's apparently a Chicago Christian film festival that we didn't submit to cause we didn't know about it. Yeah. There are, there are a lot more than, uh, than there used to be. I was going to say that, but like the biggest one is the one in Florida. Uh, but, and then there are like some really small ones, but, uh, and yeah, I would say if I were to, if I were to guess, I'd say there's probably like 15 to 20. Um, and then my follow up question, the one in the, in Florida that you went to in Orlando, right? Mm-hmm. Every year is called the international Christian film festival. Yes. How many films from outside of America are playing regular, uh, a surprising number. Um, there's usually like, you know, not everything that's an official selection actually plays at the festival. It has to be sort of a cross section of like official selection and nominated in other areas. Okay. So like I, like my, like last year, my film was an official selection and I was nominated for director. So it would play. Um, and so, but yeah, like I remember a couple years ago, there was this guy that, uh, that I had on more than one lesson via zoom, uh, who's from Germany and he was nominated his his film was nominated and, and it was in and, German, like with subtitles. I believe or? so. Yeah. Um, again, I don't watch movies, uh, while I'm there, but, uh, yeah. And then they, there were like some Japanese films that have been there. So there, it truly is international. Um, and, uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I remember Frank kind of saying that, and it really is that like, I genuinely think that the Christian film industry is still relatively new. So it's organically learning a lot of the same lessons that real, that regular movies, <laughs> secular movies, one could say, uh, learned, decades ago uh all right am i up now yes okay so the next film is a rewatch my one rewatch and that's julia Luktev's 
to this day only follow up to day night day night uh 2011's the loneliest planet the movie's now 10 years old oh she still hasn't okay yeah she still hasn't made another one um waiting on it because the loneliest planet i loved it um when I saw it nearly a decade ago and watching it the other day or rewatching it the other day, I, I loved it uh, even more. It's, um, uh, it's, it's, it's so in, in, engrossing and, uh, it, it's the kind of thing that I think the more, the more that a person watches movies, the more they will like the loneliest planet because it's, it's a movie in every like in every in every way, but it, like I said with Day Night, Day Night, Day Night, Day Night, her, 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 her instincts, her impulses, her interests, um, and and the language with which she explores them and expresses them um, is is completely her own. I mean, like I said, I, I, I compared Day Night, Day Night to um, the Darden Brothers, and I think that. Um, comparison gets made a lot to a lot of, uh, I think they influenced a lot of um, how uh, sort of international independent films uh, have looked over the last 20 years probably. But um, it really is her own. Uh, she has her own way of, uh, of, of making movies. Uh, the loneliest planet I, I should say for people who don't know what it's about is um it's about uh, it's about an hour and fifty two minutes. Uh, I'll never get tired of that joke. Um, it's about a couple, uh, an engaged couple. Um, she's Israeli, played by uh, is it Honey Furstenberg, mm-hmm. um, and he's Mexican, played by Gail, Gail Garcia Bernal, and they are hiking through the Ural Mountains. Uh, they're in Georgia. They've hired a, a Georgian guide. Um, it's Georgia, the country, right? Clear. Um, and um, I, and this is one that I really won't spoil. I'm not going to say right. jump ahead. Like there is uh, a, a thing that happens well into the movie mm-hmm. um, that uh, completely changes. Um, it's basically, you know, I mentioned that day night day night was about someone who believes something um, very fervently. Um, in a different way, Honey Firstman's character in The Loneliest Planet also believes so fully in her relationship. She believes in this in in this man, and at the halfway point, she realized that. Uh, I think what I said. I watched these because I wrote another thing for FilmIndependent.com about my someone we watched uh, column, where I uh, revisit uh, past winners of the Someone to Watch Award and then watch something they made. Did you name that then. column? Um, I think I think Matt Warren might have named named it someone we watched. That's a um, that's a good title for uh, that column. Uh, yeah, um, uh, and so I, I made this. The, the, I think the way I put it in in that column was that she realizes that all of her beliefs about this man were just assumptions, and um, unlike Day Night Day Night, which ends at a uh, a certain point that I won't uh, get into, a lot of the movie keeps going on after this thing happens and the she doesn't have anything to fill the void that, that just, that just came in. I think the question of whether or not these two are going to patch things up, I think I've read a lot of different reviews. I think some people who are maybe more forgiving or hopeful, uh, feel like these two will work it out. I feel like this 
relation this marriage is not going to happen this relationship is is doomed but maybe that uh, i'm just projecting my own uh thing uh onto it but uh you're reacting you've seen the movie yes although i, I mean i saw it many years ago oddly enough i don't remember much about it except that moment uh, that moment is just it's very impactful in, in, your, in my brain yeah, yeah. um but uh yeah definitely watch the loneliest planet it's it's great you know what? It'd be, a, it'd be a fun double feature with force majeure, I think. Yeah, I wrote about this. In totally the, very different. Totally very different. different. But I, I wrote about that in this in the um, in, in the someone we watched thing. Like how much of that, because coming from a female filmmaker, mm-hmm. how much of it actually is a comment on gender roles and how much is it just like it wouldn't have been OK if it happened either way around. Right. So is it? Is it our own masculine insecurity that makes us think that the movie is commenting on masculinity? Sure. When really it's just like this guy in a relationship did like uh, the thing you the thing you're not supposed to do, right? <laughs> and and that's but that's the thing is like if it had gone the other way, it, who knows whether the characters or the audience would if it would even register oh, right. as a wrong thing right yeah that's a good point um so okay my last film is a hulu uh, sorry it, it wasn't made for hulu but i saw it on hulu it's a documentary uh called what is it wait this is your last one yes did we fuck up because i have one more i think mortal Kombat threw us off i thought it didn't but maybe it did okay um and maybe i miscounted or did i did hang on did i miss one i don't think i did okay I thought you would have one more after me. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I miscounted. Oh, okay. um, so, yeah, we have the same number. Uh, okay. How cute. Aw. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, the film is called The Orange Years, The Nickelodeon Story. I, I threw it on while I was ripping discs for uh, the film okay. I was working on. Uh, and... I wanted something that I could walk away that I could pause and walk away from and do something else and then come back and not worry about being lost. Um, mission accomplished. You did not have cable growing up. Yes. Right. Okay. So, but you're, you were familiar with Nickelodeon. I'm sure as a kid, I had friends who had cable. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. so here's, so it's, it's everything that kid 90 isn't. It's, oh, okay. Yes, it uses archival footage, certainly, but it's mostly just interviewing people who, like, the the stars and the hosts of, like, the Nickelodeon shows of the 1980s, like, when it first started out. Um, and it's just done with maximum, maximum nostalgia. They just kind of go, like, show by show, like, showing, like, oh, the, hey, you remember this? This started, and then they interview one or two of the people involved with it, and then they move on to the next thing. Um you know, as someone who watched Nickelodeon growing up, yeah, I, I watched it and I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, and then like, oh, it's nice to see, oh, there's Mark Summers who hosted Double Dare. And it's fun to see him talk about that experience. Like, oh, there's Kenan Thompson and uh, talking about Kenan and Kale. Oh, what about uh, Lori Beth Denberg? Is she in it? Who's that? Um, she was on All That. Yes. That's her. Yeah, uh, she yeah. Was, yes, so she's, she's in. The only reason I was like, I thought of her. She's in uh, Ham on Rye, uh, the movie that I uh, loved from from uh, a year or two ago, and it was. Uh, I was like, oh, I'm glad to see her still. Yeah, doing and stuff, and all that uh, showed up like after I stopped watching. Uh, but yeah, so she's interviewed a lot of. I mean, a lot of people are, and um, and so it's kind of neat to see all of these people now. Uh, 
you know, you have both of the Pete's from the adventures of Pete and Pete. Um, but you really, you certainly don't learn anything. It, it really is more just like, Hey, remember this? You liked it, didn't you? Well, all right then moving on. Um, it's really just that the, there are a couple of things that I, that I found interesting about like the, the founding of Nickelodeon. And one of them is an interesting philosophy that I don't know. I fully disagree with, but I kind of understand, but I understand the idea of Nickelodeon came about because as they're coming up with programming for it, for this new, this new network that was called pinwheel, uh, for a while, um, they they really wanted to like empathize with kids and they really wanted to essentially get to this point. It's like, it's like, well, we love Mr. Rogers. We love Sesame street. We love reading rainbow and all of these PBS shows. We love them. And children are certainly learning from them, but you know what? They learn at school. Their parents are constantly teaching them. And now you have these shows that are teaching them and there's nothing wrong with learning, but sometimes a kid just wants to be a kid and just have fun. And that's what I think we're going to try and do. And so you got stuff and it's like, and we're going to do like goofy stuff, like, like double dare. And you can't do that on television. And like, we're going to come up with our own sitcom called uh, Hey dude and stuff like that. Uh, and the, and then, you know, you get like Doug and Rugrats and that sort of thing. Um, all of it based on this principle of like, we will still create what we, what is like quality entertainment. And we're not opposed to like creating empathy with characters and stuff, but we just want to try and meet the kids where they are at and give them what they want. And everybody else seems to want to discourage them uh, from wanting. So I thought that was, it's interesting. And it's the kind of thing that like, when you, when you think of that, you're just like, like, well, no, why can't kids learn while they're doing it? It's like, well, I, I, I don't think they're opposed to that, but it's more just trying to, rather than like force something on a kid when that's kind of the nature of being a kid is mm-hmm. that adults are constantly trying to shape you, which is understandable. So again, like, I'm not really sure where I stand on that philosophy, but I like that they had one and they were really specific about wanting to do this thing. Um, and so that was interesting, but honestly, it was kind of the only truly interesting thing about the the film. I mean, yes, if you grow up with Nickelodeon, you'll get a you'll get a kick out of seeing like these people now, and and you'll enjoy remembering those things, and that'll basically be it. It's just it's just one of those exercises in nostalgia, and all it really did was help me to appreciate Kid ninety even more. Right. So that's the, sadly the last film that I have to talk about. All right, so my last one is, I don't know how you say the director's first name, even though I've seen multiple films by him, uh, Azazel, Azazel Jacobs, Azazel mm. Jacobs. Um, uh, he made The Lovers a couple of years ago. He made Terry 10 years ago. Um, but uh, his new film is called French Exit. Oh, okay, yeah. It's um, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Lucas Hedges yeah. also has appearances from Daniel McDonald, uh, Tracy Letts, and an actress that I had to look up her name, named Valerie Mahaffey. Who, if you're, if you're I know you're a Seinfeld fan, like yeah. I am. Yeah. Imagine her pronouncing it Papier Mache. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And yeah. She's got a big role in this movie, too. I was like so excited to see her and then so excited that she's like in so much of the movie. Uh, she's great. I don't know why, like, she's got the great 
face to play someone like that. Yeah. And, and she, uh, she should be in more stuff. She's terrific in this. That's, but this isn't a review of Val- uh, how good Valerie Mahaffey is. Uh, the movie itself is one, it's a 2020 movie. Um, I mean, I think, it'll, I don't think it came out in the U S until this year, but it played festivals last year. So I think it is a 2020 movie and this happens every year. Movies that come out later that, um, that I think uh, if I had seen that in 2020, that would have been on my top 10 list and French exit absolutely would have been on my top mm. 10 list. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a bit of magic. There's literally some magic in the movie, which oh. is part of what's fun about it is it doesn't seem like a movie that would have them have magic. Um, but then it does have multiple scenes where there's uh, supernatural things happening and it's just the same as everything else. The, the basically the uh, main story is Michelle Pfeiffer plays a, uh, the widow of a, a very wealthy. So she, she's like a socialite, um, but she's running out of money. Um, at least by rich people standards, she's running out of money. She sure. seems to still have a lot of it. She'll by most be people. Fine. <laughs> um, but, um, she, uh, basically decides to take a friend up of, on, uh, an offer to, um, uh, live in her Paris flat. So she takes her son, Lucas Hedges, um, across the ocean and they move to Paris where her plan is to just keep spending the rest of the money she has and then die. <laughs> um, uh, but the movie's funny, but, um, also it takes place in this, I think because she's kind of given up in a way that she's not sad about, like usually someone giving up on life is a sign of depression and think, yeah she probably is depressed, but that's not how it comes across. Right. And so the movie just takes place in this kind of like nether world where nothing that happens really matters that much. Hmm. Um, it also pulls off the rare feat, um, of having sort of sort of inventing its own type of stylized way of speaking for the, for the characters that doesn't seem false or, uh, winking, you know, like yeah. even, you know, I'm, uh, his behavior aside, I'm a, I've been a fan of a lot of Joss Whedon stuff through my life, through my life, but his stuff is very like it's arch in a way that very much calls attention. Yes. So very much feels false. And that's kind of the idea. This, the characters talk in ways that aren't real, but, uh, it doesn't have that distracting, um, uh, self-consciousness to it. There's a, Wow, there's a lot of elements to this movie that I did not anticipate. Yeah, it's uh, it's a uh, uh, but the example I'll give is that um, Daniel McDonald plays a medium. That's what this is where the supernatural stuff comes in, um, and um, <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer <laughs> refers to her as a witch without judgment, just a witch. Um, and also, at one point, Lucas Hedges um, has sex with M- Daniel McDonald, which doesn't bother anyone. But then Michelle Pfeiffer starts referring to her as the fucked witch. <laughs> it's a, that, uh, that's kind of the nature of the, the dialogue in, in, in this movie, but it's a, a, a cast a magical, beautiful spell. Um, uh, I don't want to give too much away about the nature of Tracy Letts performance, but um, uh, he, he's a, a really uh, crucial presence uh in the movie and but really it's the i mean it's the michelle pfeiffer and lucas hedges show um michelle pfeiffer has been great uh forever lucas hedges i feel like uh, he's so good and also he just gets to uh, like our other he's only 24 like i feel like we've known who he is for forever he's still so young and also 
who decided that Lucas Hedges just gets to work with every grand dame of cinema from like, I know. he's been like <laughs> Julia Roberts, Mer- Meryl Streep, oh, the whole cast of let them all talk. And now yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer, like he just, uh, this is just his, his trademark, him and the greatest actors. Do you think of he's out of their money? <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> 